All right, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to another session. <laughs> As always, you know, we just sit here and um, we just sit here. It's, it's such a beautiful thing to know that God is going to show up. You know, like you just sit here and you just, you know, coming into the meeting, there wasn't any pre-registered speech, pre-planned sermon, nothing like that. But just sitting here and knowing that in the time that it is needed, the words that are necessary to help us today will be provided. And I tell you, every meeting is, is a walk of faith and it's a beautiful experience to just allow myself to be a medium, a medium for the teacher. You know, like I always say, I am not the teacher. It is written that Christ said, do not call anyone on earth your teacher, for only one is the teacher, and that is Christ. Anyone who stands to teach is one who does so because they are channeling the voice of the teacher through them. We are vessels that are filled by the Spirit of God, and any beautiful encounter that a person encounters through and from us is as a result of that life of God coming through us. So it's always important that we remember who it is that is teaching us. So long as we have that in our minds, not only will we be able to bring out the pure oracles of God, but if we remember that, even if the pure oracles of God is coming out from the mouth of a donkey, we will be able to receive and hear. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Come on, come amen. on. <laughs> so yeah, we're here for week two of Beyond the Veil, the Q&A session on God, religion, and spirituality. Who can tell me why it's called Beyond the Veil? What, what does a veil represent? If you can, like I say, if you can read, what does a veil represent? Who wants to go? You can raise your hand and tell me, what does a veil represent? What does a veil represent? Awesome, Finney. Okay, go ahead, Finney. Please tell me, what does a veil represent? Uh, okay, uh, a veil is a covering. A mm. veil is something that hides something else. And, mm. uh, okay, for a bride, for instance, a veil is used to cover her face that others do not see. But then yes. there is one who writes to raise the veil. That is the groom. And mm. so he's has that right to lift the veil because he has uh, 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 let's say a place in the yes. life of the bride. so yeah a veil is a covering yes awesome awesome thank you for that Finney. thank you tell me what about you what does a veil mean to you when you hear the word veil what what does it communicate to you tamu are you able to speak Oh, hi. I didn't hear my yeah. name initially. Okay, so a veil is a covering, mm. a mask, a blindfold. Mm. Sometimes the point is to conceal glory. Sometimes mm. it's to prevent someone for, from saying something. So it could have positive or negative connotations. Mm. We have the brides who cover themselves just before the wedding. Then the husband yes. is given the honor of taking off the veil to behold his bride. So that is... For excellence, that is for good. And now, for yes. example, the veil 
that covers people whose minds have been given over to depravity, so to speak. Their eyes have been veiled. They cannot see right from wrong. So that is the negative connotation. So I think Beautiful. it also requires an intentionality to be able to take the veil off. You have to be intentional about wanting to see behind what it is covering. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that, Tommy One. Thank you for that, Finney. Exactly. It's a covering, it's something that conceals something else. So when we talk about going beyond the veil, we're talking about going beyond the covering. Well, before I say that, Faith asked if you, she said, you kept saying, if you can read, what do you mean by that? <laughs> okay. Who wants to go ahead and answer that question for me? Who wants to go? Who can tell her what I mean by if you can read? Who, someone raise your hand. Awesome, Genesis. Genesis, go on, man. I like your energy. <laughs> Do you want to explain? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so what, what does it mean to read? Um, to read is to see the real essence of something. Um, so, like, I'll just give the only the example that comes to mind is when um, I think it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus I went to ask Jesus, what can you do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus said, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus was like, um, should I enter my mom's womb again? And Jesus said, no. Um, then he went on to basically explain what it really meant, or like break it down. So to read is to get to that root, or like the essence, the real meaning behind um, the, uh, the external one. I hope, I hope I did that well. Awesome. Yeah, you did Genesis. Awesome. I was just testing. I wanted to see if you just, you know, Shock me so that I can deal with you after. <laughs> Thank you for that, Genesis. <laughs> so yes, Faith, and to anyone else who's listening, when I say, can you read? It means, are you able to see the spirit behind what is being said? Are you able to see beyond the external covering? Can you see the truth? You know, for example, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, from an external point of view, it looked like a very bad thing was happening. But to those who were able to read, to those who were able to see beyond what was obvious, to see the spirit behind the experience on the cross, what looked like something that was a tragedy was actually the most glorious moment, which ended up benefiting every single one of us even 2,000 years later. So to be able to read is to be able to see beyond the surface, to be able to see a bit deeper into what is being represented in that moment, what God is saying, and what is really happening. So when we say, can you read? It can apply not only to scripture, it can, only, it can also apply to seasons of our lives because things can be happening. For example, something can happen to you that can look so beautiful, so happy. But if you can read, you know that this moment is a trap. And if you can see very carefully, you know that this thing that looks so beautiful is actually very ugly and vice versa. Something very ugly, unpleasant might be happening. But if you can read, if you can see beyond the surface, you're able to see the hand of God, even in that moment that seems unpleasant. Does that help you, Faith? Do you understand the concept of can you read? Faith, are you, are you there? Okay. Well, Grace went the extra mile and gave her a whole podcast. <laughs> well, yes, there's a whole session called Can You Read? So if, if you guys want to check that out, just go to the podcast and um, find Can You Read? There's a whole session on that. So you can definitely um, do that. So yeah, beyond the veil, beyond the veil, beyond the veil. And that's exactly what we're here to do, you know. And it's all, first of all, I find it good to say that God 
even though we say that God hides things, you know, because we say, for example, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings to search it out. So on one hand, we say that God conceals things, that, he, that is, he hides things from people, he hides things from us. But on another hand, we can also say that God doesn't hide anything. Everything that there is to know and everything that there is to see is already available and already present. The question is, do we have the eyes that are able to recognize what is already present? You know, a beautiful example I would give for that is, for example, right now, we're all on our digital um, devices. Some of us are on our laptops, tablets, mobile phones. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, these mobile phones, this, um, these laptops and whatnot didn't exist, right? But are you aware that the same, the materials that were used to make our mobile phones, laptops, and all that, are you aware that those same materials existed 3,000 years ago? I'm asking. Are you aware of that? Yeah, exactly, you know? So everything that, you know, all the materials that makes our cars, our planes, our phones, everything existed 3,000 years ago. It was always present. But you see, 3,000 years ago, people didn't have the ability to see what was already there. And because they didn't have the ability to see what was there, then we can say what was there was hidden. On one hand, we can say God hid it from men. On another hand, we can say men were just blind. So there are two ways we can see it, you know. So when we talk about the veil being removed, on one hand, we can say God removes the veil or the covering from something that was always there. On another hand, we say he opens our eyes, true or false. I'm asking, true or false? True, true. Uh-huh. Just like in the Bible, you know, and it said that Jesus Christ opened the eyes of their understanding for them to understand the scriptures. The scripture didn't change. It's not as if there was a paper, a, a cardboard covering the scriptures to make them not see what was written. It's the same scriptures. But the difference was that their awareness was elevated and he opened the eyes of their understanding. And what was always there became apparent to them. So that's exactly what we're here to do today. We're here to help us to see what has always been there, waiting for us to discover, waiting for us to understand. So like I said, this is a Q&A session, you know, um, where we get to ask a lot of questions revolving around God, religion, and spirituality, you know. <coughs> and... Um, um, before we go into the Q&A, I would like to just give an, a little, um, I guess, opening message, you know, to help give us a kind of direction. And actually, the opening message is related with a question that was asked last week. I don't know if it was a gentleman or a lady that asked about, um, she asked something around the, the lines of, oh, why should it be Christianity? Why this religion? over any other religion? Why should we choose this? Why is Jesus Christ the way? What about the traditional um, um, quote unquote, um, quote unquote, 
um, knowledge that we had in Africa? Why do we abandon that for Christianity and so on and so forth? And it's a very beautiful question. You know, oftentimes when questions like these come into the church, you know, we are very quick to dismiss them and just throw them away as opposed to giving useful understanding to people that when they leave, they can have some kind of peace of mind, you know. So last week, we gave a little definition on what God, religion, and spirituality is. I say little definition because whatever was defined last week is just a little summary. All those things are stuff, are things that you spend a lifetime learning. But we just gave a little summary to give us a kind of, well, summarized understanding so that we can have something to work with. So the first thing we said was that God can be defined as the source, the place where every single one of us has come from the point of origin of all creation. There is nothing that exists that does not exist by the force of God. Could it be that things that came out of God got adulterated along the way and became so caricatured that they look almost nothing like their creator? Absolutely. That is a given. But the fact that they look malformed or their faces have changed, their nature has changed, doesn't mean they don't have the same source. Do we understand that? Do we understand that? Yes. Yeah? Yes. So it doesn't matter yes, what anything might be, no matter how beautiful, no matter how holy, no matter how evil, everything that exists has one point of origin. There is only one creator. There can only be one creator. There are not two. So when we say God... Primarily, we're talking about the source of all things. And because he is the source of all things, the point of origin of all things, that's why we call him Father. When we call God Father, it's like a metaphor because even though God is related or is similar to man, he's superlatively greater than us in nature, in capacity, in everything. But there is a similarity between us. And because of that similarity, we can ascribe human attributes onto God. Does that make sense? Hmm? It does. Yes, yeah? it does. So when we call God yes. Father, this is us ascribing a human attribute onto him. But I want us to understand that he's beyond that. But for the sake of our understanding, so that we can just understand who he is in a, in a way, we say, Father. But ultimately, God is the source of all things. God is the source is where we all come from. And when we talk about religion, we described last week that a religion can be defined as a system that has been built. First of all, I wanted to make us look at religion beyond just like what we normally call religion. I was trying to explain how if I discover any kind of thing in the world. Let me say, if I discover what I consider to be a truth, maybe it's a truth about making money. Maybe it's a truth about cooking food. Maybe it's a truth about, um, I don't know, farming. If, if I've discovered a truth about anything, right? And I want to help people come to this same truth that I have seen. In the same way that I myself built myself up, all the rules I followed, all the guidelines that helped me, all the things I learned along the way, I make it into a system. 
and I give it to another person in hopes that if they follow the guidelines that I lay down, even if they don't become exactly what I became, they will come close enough because we follow the same rules. And an example would be, for example, we have what we call music school, right? And music schools, how they have evolved in this time is because different people who have come out in history to be great, um, um, what, do you, what do you call people that make music? Like ri- music, uh, musical writers, you know? And there were laws that they followed, you know, great singers as well, you know, when they learned how to vibrate their, their throat and, you know, the different styles that they developed. So they make it into a system of learning that if a person follows in hopefully they will attain something close to what they were. Do you understand what I'm I'm explaining thus far? Yes, sir. Huh? Yes, sir. Everyone is understanding? Uh Uh-huh. So in a sense, if you go to a business school of maybe John Maxwell, that's a religion because John Maxwell made money And the laws that he followed to help him make money is what he also shared with you, right? Not for you to become a complete copycat, but if you begin your life with some certain guidelines, it'll at least keep you within a certain framework so that you don't venture off too far. And hopefully in the midst of the the framework of John Maxwell, you can easily find yourself in business, you know? Same thing with cooking. You know, if you go to the school of Gordon Ramsay or, or Jamie Oliver, these very famous chefs, you know, if you go to their school of cooking or their culinary school, that culinary school, in a sense, is a religion, quote unquote, you know, because they are giving you the laws, rules that help them get to the point that they are. It is not possible for someone to give a religion to someone that they themselves have not fulfilled. So I gave examples last week. I said, Moses, for example, for him to give the outward 10 commandments, do we know that for Moses to prescribe an outward law, he had to have had an inward law? Do we, do we know that? Yes, yes, very, very yeah? yes. Everyone, we all understand that? Yes, sir. Uh Uh-huh. So everything that Moses gave to the people in that time were things that he himself already possessed within himself. And what he possessed within himself is what he gave to another person to follow. Okay, okay. Okay, Sorry, so, can you explain that last bit about the in-law and the outward, out, outlaw? Outward law, awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, let me give you an, a very simple example of outward law, inward law, right? Outward law is when you get to a junction, if the light is red, don't cross. That's an outward law. And that outward law is given because human beings are not the sharpest, right? They can see another car obviously coming. Instead of them to be patient and say, hey, this car is coming. Let me wait for them. Instead of them doing that, they will cross the route when they can see someone else coming and then cause an accident. Now, because they don't have a law within them that enables them to see, hey, 
There's a car incoming, don't cross. Because that law doesn't exist within them, then they need the outward law of the traffic light. Now, a person who has enough discipline, self-control, understanding, wisdom to see, hey, this car is coming. It's better for me to, it's better for me to wait before driving forward. Now, a person who does that, that is one who has inward law. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So uh-huh. somebody that has a bit more discipline than the, or a bit, a bit more spiritualism than the average Joe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And based on what they have is what they now give to you. So the person, whoever, whoever it is that created traffic lights was someone who probably saw how people were having accidents. What's wrong with all these people? Can't they see that? You should be patient and wait for another person to cross before crossing. Do you understand? Because for, for someone to have created a traffic light system, he must have had that traffic light system already in himself. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely uh, understand. Thank uh, you so much. Thank you're you. Welcome, you're welcome. Uh-huh. So, so, ahead to the to exact. So, also said, can one say Moses internalized this during his time with Jethro? Absolutely. Because when you work with, for example, if Jethro is a teacher, right? For example, like we say, you know, if you go to med school, you learn all the theory, you read all the books, you read about all the great doctors, you read about Ben Carson and how he was able to separate Siamese twins successfully. You read all the theory. All this is external. But the moment you begin to put your hand on another human being and treat them of their ailment and cure them of their disease, that is when you actually become a doctor. So now it's not just something external. It's now internalized. And because it's internalized, you can easily transmit it to another person. That's why after spending, what, six years, seven years in med school, you have to spend one or two years in residency. Residency means you work with, residency means you work with, um, you work with a doctor that has been practicing for many years, you know, because you have to meet someone who has internalized their learning before they can transmit it to you. Does that make sense? Awesome, awesome, exactly. So, so yes, Moses definitely internalized the law. If Moses said, do not commit adultery, best believe that that was a principle he already lived by. He didn't need anyone to tell him. Based on his work with God, based on his learning, based on his experience, he had seen that this way of living, this way of being is not fruitful. So because he has realized it, and because he's in the midst of people who have not yet realized it, he had to write it down because they don't get it. For example, as children, we didn't know that we need to take a shower every day. As a, as a child, I hated taking my bath. If you forget to take, give me a bath, I'll thank God. If you forget to brush my teeth, I'll thank God. I didn't know the purpose or value of it. But then because I didn't know, my parents would give me the law. Brush your teeth, take your bath. But over the years, by the time I started taking my bath, brushing my teeth, and recognizing the value of it, what was once an external law became something internalized within me. Now, I may have known about taking my bath from someone else, but because I was taking my bath and learning about it and working with it, eventually that knowledge became my own. Make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh-huh. So the person who said, brush your teeth, 
The person who said, brush your teeth using a toothbrush up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. That is religion. The goal is, to, is for my teeth to be white. That's the goal. That's the aim. For me to have healthy dentition so that bacteria does not grow in my mouth, so I don't have, I don't suffer from any infection. I also don't make people around me uncomfortable with my bad breath. That's the aim. Now, the means to that aim is brush your teeth once a day, brush your teeth twice a day, brush your teeth with Colgate, brush your teeth with Oral-B, brush your teeth with my cleans. All these different things, all these different things are different rules, instructions, guides to get you to that particular end. Those rules, instruction, guides are not ends in themselves. So people ask, what makes Christianity different? Why is it better than every other religion, quote unquote? Why is it better than Islam? Why is it better than, why is it better than Buddhism? Why is it better than Hinduism? Why is it better than Taoism? That question in itself, why is Christianity better than Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism? That question itself is built on a faulty foundation. And that question itself is what has kept a lot of people from growing in God. It is also the same thing that kept a lot of people in the time of Jesus from growing in God as well, because they believed that the special thing was being part of the Jewish race, was being associated to Abraham by blood, was being connected to this rabbi or connected to this temple or connected to this or connected. They thought the point was all these systems. And they idolized the system so much so that there was no longer any room for the spirit of God. Jesus Christ did say, there is no way to the father except through me. And as we said a number of times, which we will explain if God gives us the grace. That even though Jesus of Galilee existed physically on the shores of Galilee, when he spoke and said, before Abraham was, I am, he wasn't referring to his physical body. He was referring to the immortal spirit that lived in him. Do we understand that? Okay. Yes. yes. Do we all understand that? Because he said, before Abraham was, I am. But that physical body that they could see was not so old. It was barely over 30. They, could, they saw the womb from which his physical body came. They saw the village where he came from. I'm sure a lot of those people there, they saw him in his diapers running around as a child eating sand. So there's no how that physical personality existed before Abraham. The spirit, however, that was inside of him, that was also inside of Moses, Abraham, Ezekiel, was the one that was speaking. And that spirit said, there is no way to the father except through me. There is no way to the father except through me. And this me that is being spoken about is not a historical person. It's not a picture. It's not a statue. It's a spirit. It's a spirit. And if I know all the scripture in the world, 
if I know all the Christianese in the world, if I'm in every, every Bible, biblical uh, uh, group, I mean, every, you know, if I'm in all these things, but I don't know the spirit, it amounts to nothing. Paul, the great apostle, did say in 1 Corinthians, I think chapter 13 or 12, that even if I speak the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, I am nothing but a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. I'm a noisemaker. If I speak the tongues of angels, but love is not resident with me, I'm a noisemaker. He said, even if I'm able to give my body to be burned, if I'm able to give my body to be burned and I don't have love, it means nothing. So let me first of all start by saying that no one is saved because they are, they are, they are, they are in Christian religion. No one is saved because they are in Buddhist religion, Hindu religion. All these are outward systems. So the fact that one is, you say you're a Christian and you go to this church or this branch or this denomination, if there is no relationship, experience, knowledge, encounter of this spirit of God, of this Christ, that is the only way to God. If there's no knowledge of that spirit, all those things amount to nothing. Are you guys following me? Are you following me? Yes. Huh? yes. Everyone else, you're following? Yes. Everyone? Yeah? Yes, yes. Uh -huh. So you can be part of this church, you can be part of this denomination, you can be part of this branch, whatever. You can be part of whatever religion you call yourself if there is no knowledge of this ancient and eternal spirit. All those things will do nothing but produce death. And history bears witness to that fact. We say, oh, what in the world needs is for Christians to be in power. Oh, for Christian people to be in power. Are we aware that between the 10th and 17th century, Christians were world power? I'm speaking about the Holy Roman Empire. Do we know that? Do we know that? Yes, sir. I didn't know that. Do we know that in those days, in the Middle Ages, if the Pope declares anathema on a person or a nation, no one can trade with that nation. So even if you produce the best woodworks, you produce the best stoneworks, nobody will buy it from you because the Pope has excommunicated you. Do we know that? Do we know that? History has record of what it looks like for the church to be in power. But let me, let me rephrase that. History has record of what it looks like for a church without Christ to be in power. Because they were Christians. They read Bible. They did mass every week. They did all these things. But yet the amount of evil that was perpetrated was unbecoming. Just uh, about three weeks ago, I opened a news website and I saw that 
over the last 70 years, and I'm not saying this to speak against any denomination, but I'm just stating it as a fact. So don't think this is biased or anything. No, because everyone has their own dirt in their cupboard, you know? I saw a news publication that for the past 70 years, there was, there was a record of over 300,000 boys and girls sexually molested in the Catholic Church, just in 70 years. And this is in a time when the Catholic Church is not even in power. This is a time when it was not even in power. This is when their, 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 their political strength had been greatly weakened. Now imagine it back then. How many of us have heard of the Holy, of the Holy Inquisition in the 15th century when the Spanish church waged holy war against the nations of the earth and began to kill people who didn't believe in Jesus? How many of us have heard that? And how thousands, if not millions of people were murdered in the Spanish Inquisition. I think the person who was the head of it was, uh, his name was uh, Tomas Torje Mada, something like that. That's his name. Tomas de Torje Mada. He led a movement that killed thousands and millions of people in the name of Jesus, in the name of religion. It's not about a religion being in power. It's not about a religion at all. Because in Jesus Christ's day, the people he met there, didn't they have a religion? I'm asking. Didn't they have a religion? I'm asking. Huh? They did. They did. They did. I mean, they, did. They, they did. They had a religion. They even had a culture to go with it. So it was not just religion for them. It was their culture. It was a way of life. So they had it. They even had the bloodline <laughs> to Abraham. But all that accounted to nothing. If they didn't know the same spirit that Abraham knew. Like I spoke about last week. That when we talk about Abraham crossing the Jordan River, even though it may have been a physical event, but like I said, the Bible, the word Torah means teaching. In essence, the word Torah means teaching. So if you're reading the Torah, you're reading the first five books of Moses, you're reading the prophets, you're reading the gospels, you need to first of all, let it sink in your head. I am reading a teaching. I am not reading historical accounts. Is it possible that there is historical reference here? Yes, but I am not here to read history. I am here to read a teaching. And I need to always ask, what is this thing teaching me? Yeah, so people say, oh, David had many wives. Why can't I have many wives? But did you not see the, the struggle that happened in David's life as a result of his polygamy? Didn't you see that one of his own sons tried to kill him? Didn't you see? Are, are you guys following me? Are you, are you understanding? Yes, sir. Huh? Did you see all the chaos that surrounded him yes. because of the polygamous life? Even Abraham, too, with different children from different women. Didn't you see the strife that it caused? You see? So you need to ask, what is this teaching me? Because people take that score and say, oh, eh, Solomon had many wives. Why shouldn't I have wives? Didn't you see what happened to Solomon? <laughs> Didn't you see his end? What is the Bible teaching me? And when we have that approach, when we have that standpoint, we're able to read without bias. 
We're able to read without that lens of selfishness where we only see our own desires, our own wishes, our own things. We're able to see the truth. So when we read the story of Abraham, he doesn't just talk about a person crossing over from one region of the world to another. He talks about a person crossing from one way of living to another way of living. And that is what it means to be the father of many nations. So Jesus Christ stood in front of, of, of the Israelites and he said to them, if Abraham was your father, you would not try and kill me. You are instead, I'm paraphrasing. He said, you're not sons of Abraham. You are sons of Satan for his will you love to do. Who was a liar and murderer from the beginning? We can post that scripture. Anyone who knows it, you can post it. When Jesus Christ said that, the, 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 when he was talking to the Pharisees at that time, he said, you're not sons of Abraham. If you are sons of Abraham, you won't try to kill me. You know, instead, you are sons of the devil and you, you, you're a liar and you wish to do the works of your father. But when you look at those people in that moment, physically speaking, they were sons of Abraham, true or false? I'm asking. Huh? Sure. Yeah, they were sons of Abraham. But when Jesus Christ said they were not sons of Abraham, who can raise their hand and tell me what he was talking about when he said, you are not sons of Abraham? Who can tell me? So much raise your hand. I like a new face if possible. Who can raise your hand and tell me? Anyone? Anyone? No one? Wow, come on. It reminds oh. hey, hello, El. Okay, go it on, reminds go on. me of when when um God said to Moses that Moses knows his um knows his way, but the children know his act. So exactly. a child knows the father, like knows their father. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Exactly. God bless you. That was lovely. So you 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 are the son of Abraham. If I can look at you and I see, I mean, physically speaking, what verifies you being the son of a person is the identity, is the, is the resemblance between you and them. I mean, physically speaking, I see your face, I see your eyes. It's the same thing, right? But spiritually even goes further. And that's why Paul could say, I am, they're not, there are many teachers, but there are not many fathers. I am your father in Christ Jesus. Because there was a level of encounter of God that he had that was unique in appearance. And he was able to replicate it in many people. Because every time he spoke, his speech was like a seed being planted. And when he enters into people's hearts, when it manifests as their character, their words, their actions, that is what you can call a fruit or a child of the seed that Paul planted. And that's why he said, I am the father. Because with his speech, he was able to birth people and bring the new creation out of them. And so was Abraham. And I know that you are a son of Abraham when I look at you and I see the same nature. I see the same pattern. I see the same spirit. That's what makes you a son of Abraham. Because Abraham, before he's a, he's a historical person, he's a spiritual attainment. Let me say that again. Abraham, before he is a historical person, is a spiritual attainment. And those people in Jesus' day who were about to kill the manifested Messiah, 
could not have been sons of Abraham. Because you read in the story of Abraham, when three men came to visit Abraham, three men who Abraham addressed as my Lord, one, what did he do? He prepared food for them. He made sure they ate, he took care of them before sending them on their way. So that is Abraham. Abraham welcomes the Lord. Abraham gives the Lord a resting place. Remember what Jesus Christ said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Abraham gave the son of man a place to lay his head, but the people in that time did not. And what does it mean to give the son of man a place to lay his head? Can God's character, nature, spirit find a place in you? Can it manifest through you? Can it find expression in you? Can his love find a home in you? Or if he speaks to you words of love and forgiveness, you reject it. How can I forgive this person? What do you mean by that? Yeah, the son of man has no place to lay his head in you. Because like said, the Christ is not just a historical person, but he's an eternal spirit. That is older than all stories, all books, all planets. And there is no way to God except you know this spirit. Now, what does religion do? For example, like I said last, last week, you know, I said last week, before you conclude on what a person says or the word they used, first of all, you need to ask why. Because if you don't know why a thing is, if you don't know why it came into existence, you would not know how to use it. You will not know when to use it. And if you don't know the why of a thing, you are most likely going to abuse that thing. In this day and age, when we say, oh, what separates me from this religion, that religion, why we're better, why we're different, is most of the time based on the outward things, true or false. Oh, your church building looks like this, your own looks like that. You people speak this language, we speak that language. You people call God this, we call God that. You people pray this way, we pray that way. True or false? Is that not what is the general differentiating factor? I'm asking. Huh? Yes, it is. Yeah. You know? But sometimes we need to pause and ask, why was this thing created in the first place? Because if we don't know why, we will just be so quick to dismiss something that can be of tremendous benefit to us. For example, so we, when we pray, we pray by clapping our hands and shouting and shaking our head. And this is the way to pray. And rapper say, ah, look at these people. They think it's by clapping hand and shaking head that is prayer. These people, I, Abby, haven't you seen that before? <laughs> I'm sure you must have seen all those people who clap their hand and shake their head and pray, you know? And in our ignorance, we say, oh, this person doesn't know what they are doing. And also that person who shakes their head and claps their hand and prays, when they see you sit still and pray, they say, ah, look at you. This, you don't know what you're doing because each person hasn't asked The person who instituted that method of clapping hand and praying by fire, 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 
Like I said last week, if you don't know what meditation is, you will not be able to recognize it in the different places that it appears. First of all, you call someone to pray. And you first of all tell them, now, you're going to pray about this and that. And when I say in the name of Jesus, you start to clap your hand. And as you clap your hand, clap your hand. And repeating the word, by fire, 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 by fire. That is a meditation cycle. It's going. And that's why you see, if those people that are doing it are focused intentionally, the next thing you just say, they start, Abi, who has seen this before? <laughs> who has seen it before? Huh? I've seen it. I've been in yeah. it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you see, now if you don't understand the purpose of that kind of prayer, you look at it and say these people are these people are uh, heretic or these people are because you haven't understood why. And if you don't understand why, you won't know how it will benefit you. Also, those people who sit there in one corner, who won't move, who won't utter a word, they sit quietly there with their eyes closed and they say. They are praying. If you don't know, if you don't know the why behind that method of prayer, you would just be quick to condemn it because you don't understand. For example, we say, Oh, what separates me from a Muslim is oh they they pray five times a day. I want to ask you a question. <laughs> if you are really supposed to be a good preacher, shouldn't you pray more than five times? I'm asking. Eh? it's even to your shame what is even to your shame that people make it a a, what's the word I want to use a necessity that every blessed day there must be at least five moments dedicated exclusively to God now people are doing that you have not even able to attain half of that and you are saying I'm better than this person By by what metric are you better than such a person are you understanding what I'm saying? By what metric? You're lying. You are at work. They give you, put you in charge of the accounts. You're inflating the books and, 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 and removing 5,000, 5, 10,000 10, here and there. And yet you can stand. And you say you're better than this person because he's not a Christian. Are you following me? Do you get what I'm saying? This idea of I'm better than you because I'm in this religion. It will blind you from seeing the things in yourself that keep you from actually knowing this God. Are you guys getting my point? Hmm? Are you guys getting my point? Yes. For example, in the Middle East, right? In the Middle East, well, like we know, for example, in Islam, they have their five prayers in a day. Understand something. There are people in Islam who they pray 10 times a day, but five prayers a day is a general prescription for the masses. And they have their different prayer times, you know, 5 a.m., 8 a.m., 11 a.m., and so on and so forth. Do you know that in that part of the world, every mall, every um, general office building has a prayer room? Do you guys know that? I lived, in Dubai for, I lived in Dubai for five years. I saw with my own eyes people in a boardroom meeting hmm, discussing big money business. The moment the call for prayer sounds, they drop everything they are doing and they go to the prayer room. And after their 10 minutes of the prayer room, they come back to continue their meeting. How many Christians are like this, I'm asking? Let's be honest. 
How many Christians have you seen like this? I'm asking people. I'm not sure to answer that question. <laughs> I'm not no, sure how to answer that question. This is a dragon. Don't, don't get it to This is a dragon. <laughs> this is a dragon. <laughs> Even I said we pray after our meeting. Yes, we pray after our meeting. We pray after our meeting. I've seen with my eyes, taxi driver will park his car in the middle of the desert, put his mat on the sand and pray in the middle of the highway. On a busy afternoon when people are hustling for money, he will pack his car and pray. That kind of devotion, it doesn't matter if you are devoted like that to a stone. If as a follower of God, that kind of devotion is missing from your life, you can't go very far. So instead of us spending time criticizing you, why I'm better than you, you read this book, may I read that book, you do this, do that. Instead of you doing that, as just Christ said, how about you find the log that is in your own eye? So that not only will you become a better person, but you can now know how to even help another person. Hmm? You just came out of your, I don't know, you just came from one uh, friend's house. In that friend's house, you, you spoke in a very vile way. You were, you know, said all kinds of curse words. You did all kinds of things. You just finished doing that. Then you meet a, a Muslim on the road and you say, come out to convert. You convert them to what? <laughs> Is everyone following me? Huh? Is everyone following me? Yes, yes, yes. Am I speaking a lie here? Am I speaking lies? No lies detected. No lies detected. No lies. Convert them to what? And you see a lot of people online, oh, I'm going to convert. Convert them to what? Because if we think the point is religion, if we think the point is denomination, if we think the point is this church, that church, <laughs> you're going to take broken people from the outside and break them even further. And it's the testimony, at least in this past year plus that I've spent talking with a lot of people. I know how many people I've spoken to who have been hurt severely by the church. I know one particular lady who told me about how a church she was with. You know, let me let me say that's almost private business. You know, things have happened in the name of Jesus Christ. Many things have happened in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of religion. Religion can't save anyone. It can help because when you are prescribed, oh, fasting. I mean, in this, 21st, in this 2021, for those of us who are on YouTube and all that, we've seen how fasting not only has spiritual benefits, but it also has spiritual and um, physical benefits. True or false? Huh? Right? Yeah, we see it. It's not a medicinal fact that fasting helps the body. Why? Because when the body is always working, working, eating, 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 it doesn't have the time to cleanse itself because it's so busy, busy, busy. Just like in last year when there was COVID, right? And we saw, for example, in Venice, in Italy, when people stopped commuting those rivers for a few months, what happened? The rivers that were dirty, what happened to them? For those of us who are familiar with current affairs, they cleaned up. 
was they like cleaned natural. up by themselves. They just yeah. got and if our physical body is a product of this earth, you must know that that same thing that happened in the rivers of Venice happened inside of us as well. So that time when people were not commuting on the rivers of Venice, that was like a fast. And what happened? That river that was very dirty, musty, began to clean itself by itself. Thank you, Genesis. Genesis just said a 72-hour fast can restore all the antibodies in the body. Now, guys, Genesis is presently in med school, so this is not just talking. This is, I mean, Genesis, true or false? This is a medicinal fact, right? I mean, did you just pull it out from space? <laughs> true. True, true. You know? So all these different instructions that they give in different schools, different, you need to first of all ask, why did they prescribe it? Why did they give it? When you understand the why, you can even find that even something that is not, that is not even a part of your own system of life, it can benefit you. So for example, you're not even a Muslim, but do you know that if you devote five moments in your day where God is your focus exclusively, do you know that your spiritual work will, will blow up exponentially? Do you know that? Masking. So can you come again? If we do what? If we devote? If you devote five moments in your day, that in these five moments, I'm going to stop everything I'm doing. I'm just going to pray to my God. Five, and you do it consistently for years. Do you know that your spiritual work will change exponentially? Yes, yes, yes. Sounds do you understand like my answer. point? Yes. So when it doesn't work for you, when it doesn't benefit you, is when you don't do it in the way it's supposed to be done. Because most people, they do it mechanically. Oh, they're just going to recite this and that. But in that moment, there is no interaction with God. But if you take five moments in your day, devote even just 10, 15 minutes in this time, I am just with my God. A lot can happen for you. So when we talk about religion, religion creates systems, guides, rules that if you follow them, it's, it, it puts you in a place where relationship with God can be formed easier, right? For example, you see people in all these, um, all these um, quote-unquote um, Shaolin monasteries that from childhood, they've taught them how to have control of their will, where pain no longer scares them. They're not afraid of pain. They use stick on their head every day. Some of them, they hit them on, on, in their scrotum, where they, they, they stand on their head for hours, where pain is not even, it doesn't scare them anymore. You think you take that person and you bring them to the church, quote unquote, and just give them one or two, and you think they will not surpass you in, in six months. I'm asking, do, are you aware of that? Those people they who will. have learned, they will surpass you in an unbelievable way where they spent good amount of their years learning how to meditate, how to keep their attention in one place. If you put them in the place where you, they can put, look at the right thing, do you think you can stand next to them? They will die, how can that's why Paul and Peter, there was no comparison. Because Peter was a fisherman. Hmm? He was an illiterate fisherman from Galilee, right? Galilee is a fishing town, you know, in Nazareth, you know. Paul said, I am a Pharisee from a family of Pharisees. Do you understand? Have you heard of the word aristocracy? When you talk about an aristocratic family, like uh, the, 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 the um, Rockefellers, the the, what are those big names, you know, that those families, they have like a dynasty. 
and they make sure that in every generation we produce a president or a governor or something. That was how the Pharisees were and the Sadducees. They were like the aristocracy of Israel. And they prided in the fact that they were, they were baptized in, in, in knowledge and learning. So before Christ even appeared to Paul, Paul was hot. Do you understand? Paul was like a multiple PhD holder. So the moment God just caught him and changed his attention, that was it. That's why who are you, you can't compete with that. Paul was a student of Gamaliel, one of the foremost rabbis in that time. You, you can't compete with that. That's what religion does. It's equi- it, it puts some certain equipment that will help your relationship with God. So even if you've never heard of a Christianity, we've not heard of God, and for the first 15, 20 years of your life, you are taught discipline, you are taught self-control, you are taught consistency, you are taught how to focus. By the time God appears, your, your, your walk with God fly like this. That's what religion is for, period. is to give you certain equipments that will help boost your communication with God. But the point we learn has always been the communication with God. And if it's not there, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. Whether you say I'm a Christian, or I'm Seventh-day Adventist, I'm Baptist, I'm all this, 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 all those things don't matter if there is no communion with the spirit. Religion produces rules. Make sure you're in church at 8 a.m. on Sunday. If you're a worker, be here at 6. Why did they tell you to be there at 6? It's not because if you come at 7, you'll miss God. It's to teach you how to be devoted. So the point is not coming at 6. It's to be devoted enough to inconvenience yourself to lose some sleep for this cause. Because if you're able to wake up at six every morning, depriving yourself of that extra one or two hours of sleep, in another time in your life, when an uncomfortable moment happens, that same strength that you used to get up every day at six is the same strength that will help you get through that phase. True or false? Very true. True, true. Are we understanding Very true. Wow, very true. That's religion. It equips you with certain disciplines, skills, that's all. But all those things it equips you with, if the spirit of God is missing, it will only lead to death. And there's nothing more dangerous than a person who is very equipped, but is lacking the spirit of God. Killers have been made that way. I've watched different interviews of different serial killers in history. For those of us who watch all these kind of documentaries, have you noticed, for example, Ted Bundy, all these people, this guy called the Unabomber that blew, that used to blow up universities and blow up airplanes. Have you seen that every one of those people have tremendous, tremendously high IQ? How many of us are familiar with this? Hmm? They are yeah, always I I, very I, I, intelligent. Ted Bundy was quite smart. Very smart, intelligent people. The guy that was doing the, that was bombing universities and, and airplanes, he was writing theses before he would kill people. He was even the one that, that led his own defense in the, in the court of law. All that intelligence, but when the spirit is missing, it can only lead to death. Albert Einstein came with a beautiful formula 
to liberate humankind and bring forth free energy when he showed everyone that E equals to MC squared. As opposed to them taking it and seeing how to make energy and power free for everyone, they used that formula to make atomic bomb. Now they became even more efficient in destruction. When the spirit of God is missing, when the spirit of God is missing, our equipment will only lead to destruction. The problem is not witchcraft or cutting chicken. Or the, I mean, to eat chicken, don't you have to cut it? You must cut the head of chicken out. But if there's a different spirit and oppression in you, that thing that has a good use will be turned to evil, period. This same Zoom that we're here, disseminating the word of God, there are people that use this Zoom for the, for the, for the, for the propagation of evil, true or false? True or false? True, true. You know? True, true. And it's because of the spirit that is in oppression. When the spirit in oppression is false, it doesn't matter whatever they lay their hands on, whatever they touch will corrupt. So religion is not the point. Yeah, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Judaism, Jesus Christ, did Jesus Christ call himself a Christian? Even the people in the early church, did they, did they call themselves Christians? The name Christian was something that other people gave to them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, oh, you shouldn't call yourself a Christian. No, that's nonsense. That's what I'm talking about. I'm going beyond the label of Christianity, beyond the religion of Christianity, and into the relationship with God. And that way, it doesn't matter. Because you see, how the world is going to change, it's not by you going to, because I see a lot of these people who go and stand in uh, Piccadilly Square in England and hold microphone and be causing people, say, you go to hell, you go to hell. Is that what the world needs? And people, most of those people are seeing, most of their life, all they receive is criticism, condemnation. So it doesn't matter if it's not in the name of Jesus. They have seen your type. But what they've not seen is love. Someone who can see them on a bench, hungry, tired, and saying, hey, do you need a hug? Do you need some food? They've not seen that before. That is what changes people. It's not talk, 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 talk. Because you can speak without even using your mouth. Like they say, actions speak with louder than words. So yes, there's a theory that everyone needs to learn, a theory that has been taught in maybe in the church or whatever, this, this theory, biblical theory and everything. But before the theory, there has to be an action that first shows the people, the, the spirit, because when we talk about theory, theory is the spirit of a thing, right? So they teach you, the, the theory tells you why I'm doing this. But sometimes, before you open your mouth to talk, let your actions speak. By their fruit, you shall know them, not by their, their church logo or their denomination or all those things. In the grand scheme of things, don't mean anything. So this idea of, oh, my religion is better than yours, this is all this kind of stuff. If you say, I love better, hey, hey, maybe that's different. If you say, I forgive better, hey, that's different. Even though we shouldn't be saying things like that, because why should you be comparing forgiveness and love? But if we are going to compare, let it be that. I love better than you. I'm more patient than you. I'm more forgiving than you. I'm more temperate. Now, these are the things that matter. And these are the things that will change the world. So regarding religion and this Christianity, better than this religion, better than that, this is my response. And it's the same thing that Jesus Christ said many years ago. Like I always say, the Good Samaritan story. There was an injured man by the wayside. The sons of Levi saw him and walked away. 
the high priest of Israel, who is supposed to be a living embodiment of all the statutes of God, saw the injured man and walked away. But a Samaritan, who was not even a part of the Jewish race and religion, he was the one who carried out the deed of God. He was the one that bore fruit. By all means, that one is more a child of God than even the high priest. Do you understand? And in this day, we can say high priest could be a general overseer of a church, a pastor of a branch, a this or that, a deacon, whatever. If you're a deacon, you're a pastor, you're a general overseer. And your works on a day-to-day life, the character that comes out of you is as basic. <laughs> See, Lena, your face, you just, <laughs> you didn't expect your video to come on. <laughs> it is well. <laughs> It is well. No problem. No problem at all. No problem at all. It's fine. It's fine. Your face, your facial expression was just so funny. It's fine. It's fine. So yeah, that's my response to which religion is better. You know. So on that note, that was my quote-unquote, opening speech. <laughs> Before the meeting, I talked to some people. I was like, I'm going to spend 30 minutes for this opening speech, but <laughs> alas, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> but I hope we learned something. I hope we learned something. Huh? Awesome. Awesome. Yes, awesome. we did. Awesome. So now, at this point, I would say that the floor is now open to questions. So for those of us who came here with questions, um, could we raise our hands and let's begin. Let's begin. I think there was a gentleman that asked a question earlier. He said, what's the difference between um, objective, um, objective, I think morality or something like that, I can't remember. But if you're here and that was your question, could you raise your hand as well so that we can I'm going to that. So, so yeah, the floor is open to questions. So if you have questions, just raise your hand. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be about uh, religion. It could be also be about your work with God, what a quote-unquote Christian is supposed to be. Like just questions around God, religion, and spirituality. You know, also your personal work with God. It can be around that. So if you have questions, please raise your hand. And let's jump right in. All right, Labake, your hand is raised. But wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Mm-hmm. One second. One second. Before we go forward, I would like, so Labake, Zed, and Bukumi, could you just put your hands down for just a second? I'll tell you when to put it back up. Before we go forward, can I have three people in one minute to talk about, to share their thoughts on what has been said thus far? So three people in one minute or a minute and a half to talk about what they got from what their thoughts on what has been said thus far? Because I like to, I like for us to interact. So I like three people to raise their hands and talk about what they got from all that has been said. All right, Finney, awesome. Go ahead. Uh, good evening. Good evening. Uh, okay. So, so um, what I got from what you explained uh, is uh, fruit bearing. Yeah, as I was saying, fruit bearing. That that is the essence of everything. How can I claim to 
Um, Jesus said something, how can you say that you love me and you do not keep my commandments? And then you gave that picture of uh, the people who had the tags, the people who had the name, the people who had the offices didn't show or bear the fruit. But people who were relegated, the people who were dismissed as unimportant were those that bore fruit. And uh, somehow... I'm also, I, I, uh, I don't know, it's, it, because it's kind of controversial to have this kind of conversation where you tell people that everything comes from God and uh, there are different forms of light that have been perverted and there is still something to learn from those varying forms because sometimes I think about it and how certain our practices have prevailed over the years some of these uh, religions and practices and if there is no light there I don't think it, it would have stayed this long so as opposed to completely writing these people off as um, that's not to say that we should imbibe their doctrines but to see the why as you said why do they do the things that they do and to to read beyond just the surface and so what I see uh, essentially is um, a call to bear fruit and not just uh, have a tag. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For I, what you said is true. You know, I mean, like I've said a number of times, what made Christianity blow up in, in Nigeria and Africa when the, the people originally came? It wasn't from quoting scripture or saying you're going to go to hell or all these things. No, 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 no. It wasn't that. It was the food they brought. It was the clothing they bought. It was the education. It was the health care they brought for free, funded by the church in Europe, right? Because people who came to Africa on missions, they came funded by the people in the church in Europe, right? They came funded by the people in the church in Europe. And that's what captivated people here in Africa. Wow. Someone can come and just bring help treat my illnesses for free, give me education to help me improve my livelihood, you know, give me not that, that was what was attractive. And for those of us who have ever been to crusades, you know, when people go on crusade to like maybe a, a missionary, uh, a mission to a remote area, it's food they carry there, it's clothes, it's education, true or false. For those of us who have seen a missionary or something, isn't that what they carry and is that not what they take with them? Yes. In, indeed. Yes, you know, so, I mean, in all these different systems that have existed for so long, if there wasn't any kind of kindness or goodness there, no one would stay. You understand? And these are things for us to keep in mind because you, people will not stay with you perpetually if there was not some kind of goodness from you. And that's what we need to remember. You know, so, yeah, definitely you'll find some nice and kind deeds in in different systems and whatnot, you know, it doesn't mean the whole the whole body of work is good. But if you look very closely, you see that ah, there's a reason this thing has existed for so long. There's some good that it has brought, you know, and so on and so forth, you know. So yeah, thank you for that, Finney. King Genesis. Um. So what I got, oh, okay, what came to my mind immediately, and what I was thinking of what to say, um, was when I gave my life to Christ, mm. like when I, I feel like I officially rededicated it, like I was like, okay, I'm really done with them now. Um, and then I kept hearing him say, I wasn't sure this was him, but now it makes sense that it was, but I wasn't sure who was him. Um, but I kept getting this feeling like, when you were in the world, you were putting mm. a lot of energy. Um, so mm. I, the bad habits I had then, 
and was I'd study a person and then I'd look for like the things to tell them to make them feel bad, like because people were always picking on me, so I'd strategically pick out things in them that they were maybe um not comfortable with and all that. But then when I came over to his side and he was like, now you need to use these things for me. Um, it just made me focus on seeing people's good parts, like and making them see it too, to see the value and all that that you bring and things like that. So just so just like the counterbalance of all these things and seeing that um religion is 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 the structure that brings us closer to god and that those are the things i took away from this yes you're welcome god bless you god bless you genesis god bless you okay so those that raise their hands for the questions um labake um and two other people uh-huh labake and two other people i think there was someone called zoe or i think okay so Labake, go ahead. Zed, yeah, Zed. Uh-huh, Zed. Awesome, awesome. Okay, Labake, go ahead. Good evening. Mm. Yes, so um, I can discern that um, what you've been explaining is the truth. But um, my heart and my mind, they are, I don't know, they are just like, okay, some things are not really, have not really balanced the yeah. truth. The only way is to learn the Christ, the spirit of the Christ. But like I'm just now asking this question. Would someone even know the Christ if they if they haven't met the man who embodied the Christ? And then I'm like, then could it now be that someone else can get the essence of the Christ without ever knowing about the cross? And then how would you get to um, know about your eternal salvation if you've not known like the doctrine of Christ through the one who is the perfect you know like high priest and the one who is um, the son of God and I know the answers will come and I can discern that it's actually the fruits the nature if you say you believe Christ and then you do not have the Christ like nature then, then it's, it's, it's a lie but it's just, I don't know if you can, if you get the essence of my questions. I, the question is beautiful. That's just. Thank you so much for that, Lamake. That was a very, very beautiful question. And God bless you. God bless you for asking that. You know, I, I really enjoy when, you know, like I said, it's an atmosphere where we're learning, you know, and even if one has a conflicting opinion or one feels like oh this doesn't sit right it's fine you know it's good to just ask and let's um let's probe it together let's see what god has to say and let's see what we can learn you know so she said is it possible to know this christ without um encountering the person that embodied him and that's a beautiful question i want to open um first peter first peter chapter um, I think one, um, I think verse nine. Let me open, let me be sure. First Peter chapter one. Aha. First Peter chapter one, verse 10. 10 and 11. So I'm going to post it right here in the chat box. First Peter chapter one, verse 10 and 11. And I'll tell you the purpose of why I'm posting this because it's something I want us all to learn 
here, right? So First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. And it reads, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. The prophets spoken about here by Peter as the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah, etc. So he's speaking about the prophets of what we call the Old Testament, right? So he said, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ <laughs> and the glories that will follow. I'll tell you I'm laughing because it says the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. So Christ in them was testifying of the suffering of Christ. I'm saying this because we have this idea that when we say Christ, right? We think of Jesus Christ of Galilee of Nazareth. And we believe that Christ had never come or Christ had never appeared unto Jesus, the man of Galilee. Now, when we have that belief that Christ has never appeared except through the man of Galilee in all of history, we won't also believe that between 2000 years and now, Christ has been appearing and appearing and appearing and appearing and appearing. Because the ineffable spirit of God always manifests himself to humanity through a prepared vessel. Through a prepared vessel. And like I always say, every vessel, for example, Let's describe a vessel as a generator, right? For generators, we have 10 kVA, we have 50 kVA, we have 100 kVA, because each generator has its different degrees of capacity. The same with transformers. You have a transformer that can power five houses. You have transformers that can, that can power 50 houses. So every vessel is different but every vessel has in some capacity the ability to inhabit God. And Jesus of Galilee is one who has inhabited God in a way that no one else has. He inhabited the fullness and totality of God. But I inhabited the fullness and totality of God does not mean that the one who inhabited a portion doesn't have something to tell you about God. Moses, for example, inhabited a, a, a significant portion of God, inhabited a dimension of God, and he was able to <coughs> sorry, move an entire generation from one place of living to another. Exactly to read so. The analogy of wineskins applies here. There's different sizes of wineskins. And if one's wineskin is not strong enough, it can't inhabit a very large amount of wine. Wine, in this sense, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, primarily, you know, in the beginning of one's walk, 
before you get to know God on the inside of you, before you become acquainted to that spirit that exists in you, because the world is very corrupted and very fallen, and because if you just grow up in this world, the tendency of, you, of the sanctity of your mind to be polluted, because that tendency is very high, the first thing that must happen is for God to connect you to somebody who has been connected to God. And through that person, you begin to have a picture. The key word here is picture, because you can only know God by knowing him in yourself, right? You can't know God except you know him as spirit in yourself. Prior to your own individual and personal encounter with God within you, you don't yet know God. You only know of him. Oh, through you, I know of the forgiveness of God. Because in truth, we as people are supposed to be living embodiments of God. Paul said, you are letters, not written with ink, but by the Holy Spirit to be read by all men. And I'm adding a bit of my own part into it. That when they encounter you through the reading of your life, they know more about God than they possibly could ever can, even if they tried on their own, because of your nature, your character, your way of being. Just by being around you, they have experienced God. And Jesus Christ attained that to such a degree that he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Because he had so much embodied God that everything that oozed out of him was purely God's nature, character, essence. He was God manifest. He was God manifest. And just by meeting him, you could experience a taste of God. But that's not the most beautiful thing about Jesus Christ. I want us to understand. The most beautiful thing is not that through him you could experience God. Because remember, Paul talked about how in those days, because there was no Facebook, there was no Instagram, you know, if someone is going from one church to another, you don't know what he looks like, you know. So for me to accept this person, he has to come with a letter from an already established church saying, this man, Paul, we know him and we validate him. So a person must come with like a letter of validation, right, with a seal. You know those days when they write letters, they pour red um, wax and they put a seal to show that this is a certified document. Paul said, I don't need to carry any of those things around. You people are my letter of validation. I am validated as a teacher when my students are looked at as marvelous individuals. So what made Jesus Christ great is not what he attained in himself, is what he had helped other people to attain. And let us remember that. What makes you great is not because of what you have achieved, but what others have achieved because of you. And to bring it in a secular way and help us to, you know, understand it in a secular way, not to glorify this, but look at, for example, Jay-Z, right? Yeah, he made money from rap and everything, but through him, you had Rihanna, you had J. Cole, you had... Um, all kinds of people who also became rich. Now, all those people that became rich because of quote-unquote Jay-Z are validation of his quote-unquote 
greatness and understand. I say quote unquote because I'm talking about greatness in that field of life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand? Yes, we do. Huh? Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. So what validates Jesus Christ is the people that were able to be as he was as a result of his teachings. Because ultimately, every single one of us are supposed to be an embodiment of God. The first stage of a person's encounter with God ought to be through you. So before you talk about, oh, this is how you should pray. Oh, this is, before you have even gotten to that point, just by the way you look at a person in the eyes and you listen to them and you pay attention to them and respond to them, they should have encountered God already. And it's based on you. You see, because there's this idea of, oh, you know, I want to separate myself and it's just God. Yeah, there's that. But the average person's first point of contact with God is you. And we have to remember that. The first point of contact is you. So don't say, oh, don't look at me, forget me. Well, there's truth in that in order to avert pride and everything, you know. But the first point of contact has to be you. They have to see you and from their experience of you, they, they have an idea of what God tastes like, what God smells like. Because a father always replicates himself. If they check the DNA, they see it's the same thing. So a son of God is one who's, who has God's DNA, his character, his nature, his traits. So by experiencing you, they ought to see what God is. And no matter how many scriptures you read, I can read all the scripture in the world, you see. And let me tell you, if I read the scripture with diligence, this scripture can unlock a dimension within me where I begin to experience a dimension of God. But it's something different when you meet a person in front of you and through them, God is channeled. So the first point of contact a person ought to have of God is through a vessel that God has prepared. And that's why we have the Bible. You have the book of Ezekiel. You have the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah. You have the book of James, of Peter, of John, of Paul. You have all these books because the first point of encounter has to be through men who have encountered God. And if you encounter God in the spirit and he gives you a powerful vision, he will still lead you to the scriptures because the first point of contact is through people that have contacted God. You see? So when we talk about experiencing Christ, meeting Christ, have you ever met Jesus Christ physically in Galilee? Have you met him before? If not, Physically, you're not. But that spirit that was speaking to that man in Galilee, you might have experienced it just by reading, you know, the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, the book of John. You might have experienced it through reading Corinthians. You might have experienced it from your community or from someone. You might have experienced it. Because the way God expresses himself to us is always through men in the beginning, quote-unquote, you see. He takes a vessel and he expresses himself 
to you. And that's usually the first point of contact. Now we talk about things like the cross and if a person doesn't know about the cross, what is the cross? Because we think it's about knowing about how a person died, they nailed him 2000 years ago. Yes, it's a beautiful and powerful story, but if the spirit of the story is missing, then that story is of no benefit. Because in all that story, the most important factor is what most people forget. We talk a lot about, oh, Jesus Christ died for us. Oh, he did this, he did that. But the most important aspect of that story was when Jesus Christ said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Because it's not only Jesus of Galilee that gives his life as ransom for others. Everyone who has within themselves the spirit of God will also give themselves as ransom for others. Because the Christ always sacrifices itself, always reduces itself for others to benefit. That is the spirit of the Christ. And it has always been like that in all of history. And that is the gospel of the cross. That is what it means to preach Christ crucified. It's not about saying, oh, someone died 2,000 years ago. It's about relinquishing yourself for another person to gain. Because of the love you have for God, that is what it means to preach the cross. Preaching the cross is through your nature. I can see that you are dead to this particular attribute. Just meeting you, because when we talk about the cross, like I've spoken about many times, the cross is not only a symbol of death, it's also a symbol of life. So to preach the cross is not just about quoting a story from 2000 years ago, but manifesting the resurrected power of God. How love has resurrected from you, even though you grew up in a family where hatred was commonplace. That's the resurrection power. That's the preaching the gospel of the cross. And it will have more impact on people, far more than quoting scriptures. You can never take scriptures out of the way. But if you have scriptures without the spirit and power behind the scriptures, then the scriptures that are supposed to set you free Will put you in further bondage. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Do you guys understand? Yes. Labake, do you understand? Yes, sir. Yes, huh? I do. Do you have I a question do. you want to add to it so that I can, in case I've not unfolded properly? Yeah, this first one has unfolded. Thank you. Hmm. Now, the second one is when Christ died, when he, he was saying he was going to go and prepare a place for us. Mm. He now sent us the Holy Spirit. And, you know, my understanding is, it's the Holy Spirit that helps me live Christ-like. Um, I, it's just very simple. I just want, so is, is it the, the Holy Spirit is the same as the Spirit of Christ? And then if someone, someone does not know about the Holy Spirit, how can that person... Okay, okay. No, like, don't confuse yourself. No. The Spirit of Christ, you say, is the one in every... It's, it's possible to get that Spirit, that essence, because we are all from the Creator. So it, it, is, that, that, is that saying people have the Holy Spirit when they do not know about the whole work of the cross? Will they have the Holy Spirit? Can they be led as well? 
just like we are being led? Like I said, you know, no matter the encounter you have with God, no matter, I mean, look at Moses, for example, right? Moses obviously encountered God at a young age, you know, and who knows the dimensions of God he experienced. But notwithstanding, beyond whatever individual encounter he had, he still had to submit himself to someone who had gone way ahead of him. God will always connect you if you begin your journey with God. And if it's really the Holy Spirit at work in you, he will always, look at Paul. The moment light struck him, what happened? Who can tell me? What happened? Who can tell me? For those who know our Bible. Well, um, he was directed to someone. Yeah. He was directed to the prophet. God directed the man to him. God directed the man to him. It's both ways. Ananias. God took him to Ananias. Took Ananias to him. It's both ways. The moment the light struck him, Paul was led to Ananias a person who God had prepared. And of course, Ananias too also had his own beginning. Remember the story of Samuel who lived with Eli. He started hearing God at a young age and Eli told him, next time, go and say, I'm listening to you. No matter how you begin, no matter whatever, it doesn't matter. God will always connect you to someone who has gone ahead of you, who has developed a genuine rapport with the Holy. God will always, is always like that. Some of us here, that's how we find ourselves in this place. We started having some dreams. We started having some inner groanings, some inner longings. And that's how we all find ourselves in this place. And also some of you that he also connected to other places as well. And that's how God starts to connect you to people who he has been grooming and working with. It's always like that. I'm also like that. That's what happened with me. Literally, the first people who taught me, well, I had some people who were coming to my house a lot, you know, helping me to learn about a lot of things. Because when I began, it was very, my eyes opened in a very spontaneous way and so much was going on that was just so hard to understand a lot. I was learning a lot. God was communicating a lot. And most of the time when I would talk about it, there was a lot of argument, heresy, this, just because I hadn't yet really read the Bible at that time. So it was just strange. Then a particular period in my life, God was just telling me, I want you to find, there's someone I want to connect you to. And he kept on telling me, and I began to go online. This was 2012. I began to go online. I didn't, I didn't know who I was looking for, but I knew the moment I would find that person, I, I would know this is the person. And I just began to go online. You know, I was just going online, just searching on Google. I'll just put random searches. Put For weeks, I was putting that, I'll find different websites. I say, it's not the one, it's not... The moment I found the person, ah! I remember that time, I, my, me and my sister's um, um, fiance at that time, who is now her husband, we were the ones studying together. The moment I found him, I, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> I called him on the phone. I said, Maya, whoa, I found somebody, man. Whoa. <laughs> and this was a man, his name is John Preston Ebby, in case anyone is wondering. This was a man who at that time was about 80 years old and had been writing diligently, faithfully every month for the past 40 years. This man didn't have a church, nothing. He was just writing every month for the past 40 years. 
tell me how someone in, in I think he lived in one of these um, um, southern states in America. Tell me how someone who makes all those kind of publications, some way, somehow, his writings got to Nigeria. That I met someone who had been reading his writings since 1998 in Nigeria. When God wants to connect, he knows how to do it. And if it's the Holy Spirit that is at work in you, he would not isolate you. He will connect you. That's the thing. There will be time for isolation in everyone's work. But isolation always comes before connection. I'll write his name down for you, people. John Preston Ebby. Preston E-B-Y. <clears throat> he has a very large website with is a whole library, is a whole catalog. And that time, God made me digest hundreds of his essays. And each essay was very long. Maybe one essay is like 40,000 words. God would make me sit down. I was digesting. That was one of the first people that helped to help lay a healthy foundation for my, for my um, doctrinal understanding. You know, God used him so powerfully in that time of my life. And glory be to God for that, you know. And that was how I started, you know. So God always connects you to people. And just like that, even physically, he was connecting to different people, just connections all, of, all over the way, you know? Because God will always connect you to people who he has already groomed ahead of you. So if it's the Holy Spirit, he will connect you to someone who has gone ahead. That's how God works. But everyone within themselves, no matter how far you are, there's a piece of God that exists inside of you. And that peace of God is able to talk to you. And if you, you don't have anything around you, for the fact that you start listening to that voice, sooner or later, you'll find yourself connected with someone who knows. That's the way it is. I can't explain it, but that's the way it is. Call it love, attraction, call it whatever you want. I don't care. The moment you are listening to that voice in your heart, you really want to know it, it will connect you. How many, how many, how many can give that testimony? That there was a time in your life you were just seeking to know more of God. And as you're seeking, you just started to find yourself connected to different people. Who can testify that has been yes, a story? I, I can. Yeah? I can. I can. That's the way it is. That's I the way know. it is. Yeah. It's not, it's not different. And that's why people who, people who enter into trouble in their spiritual work, hmm? if you enter into trouble, it's because inside of yourself, you're not pure or you're looking for it or something within you. Because if your heart is genuine and you're really looking for God, hmm? even if you might find yourself going astray, even if you might go in the wrong way, because you're really looking for God, some way, somehow, you'll be connected to the right place. Maybe someone will call your phone, say, my friend, my friend, my friend. God said, I should tell you that hmm, you, are in the, you are moving left, you see. Because if you're really looking for God, even if you start to make a mistake, if your heart is really looking for God, is moving towards him, some way, somehow, God will push you back in line. And for me, that is what has helped me, especially in this spiritual work where God exposed me to what you can call the mystical, supernatural, spiritual aspect of him. It's a whole different world. And what has helped me is that heart of God is you I want to know. I want to know you. And because of that, the moment I get close to something that is not him, I know and I live there. 
and it has helped me. And over the years, I've been able to develop a level of not just discernment from experience, but discernment in theory as well. So before I even experience something, I'm listening, I'm listening to you, you know, because God drowned me in a lot of theoretical knowledge on this, a lot, a lot. There was, there was and there still is a lot of study. A lot. So much that if you ask me, study has become so normal that if you ask me, do you study? I say I don't because it doesn't even register anymore that I'm studying because studying is just part of life. I can't go a day without researching something. It's just natural. Like, I don't try to anymore. So if you ask me, I say I don't study, you fall for a trap because I don't, study is not so much something that is, that is, uh, my mind records anymore. It's become so normal that I don't even record it. You know? Because God will always connect you, you know. So, yeah, that's how it works. Even if you happen to have a massive collision with the Holy Spirit, even though you never heard about him before, great. He will always connect you to people with strong theory. And prophets, quote unquote, that go and miss, if you listen to them, they are always people who were separated from sound teaching, sound doctrine. That's why you hear them. There's always so much funniness in their speech because they isolated themselves, you know? And such people, I also don't really pity them because if you are really looking for the truth, even if you are in the midst of vipers and that's, it's only vipers you, because people say, okay, I couldn't have known better. That's all I've known. You know, everyone around me was like that. That was the way I was introduced into prophetic grace. But if your heart was really right, I'm telling you, even if you were in a, in a pit of hell, that sliver of, sliver of light will find you and it will pull you out of it. So most people who are still there, they themselves are not looking for the truth. They're not. Because if you're looking for the truth, you discover that all along, it was actually the truth that was looking for you. Do we understand? Yes. Huh? So that's my response. I know it's not a direct response to your question, but you just have to meditate on what I've said. But sometimes yes. you ask questions. Uh -huh. So meditate I, on it. I understand. Well. Thank you. you I understand? can discern that it's the truth. And I can discern that um, God has actually been exposing our minds here at HJ in this way. But I guess I, I was trying to play safe and I was trying to force myself into a, a rigidity. And I can see that just by saying your story of how you were connected to someone, something just really sparked in my mind to see where I had been closing my mind. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, it's good for me to say that. It's good for me to say that rigidity is important, right? Everything must begin in certain boundaries. You know, like when you first of all, you know, like in transplanting, when you first put a plant in a particular place, you know, you put it in a box that you can somewhat control the way it grows. Then after a point, you take the box away. We need to all begin with a level of rigidity because we need to begin within boundaries. It's important that you understand boundaries. Now, when you have learned how to be rigid, that is only when flexibility is valuable. But if you're flexible, and you haven't, first of all, developed some rigidity in some way, you're already in trouble. And that's why you look at this new generation, 
with, with new age movements and, you know, calling out things and, you know, this and that. Yeah, there might be some truth here and then the things that they are saying. But you see these people that are talking, the rigidity of discipline, self-control that comes as a result of being part of a particular system, they don't have it. And that's why they can come and they sit down. And when they open their mouth, they can, they can bedazzle with, with intellectual prowess. But when it comes to the real matters of life, they take off because it, it, that inner rigidity of character doesn't exist. So their intellect is useless, you see. And that's, that, that's what makes the difference. So when I hear these people, I'm hearing your word, you know, but I want to see your life. I want to see you in the midst of chaos. I want to see who you be in the midst of an uncomfortable situation. I want to see who you are when displeasure is around. I, I want to see you on your worst day. That's when I can begin to measure you as a person. Because your goodness is only truly measured when all the odds are against you. That's when I can see just how good you are. Do you get my point? There's this new movie that, that just came out, this Dune movie, <laughs> which is very controversial. And I saw a very beautiful scene where the woman took the young boy and told him, put your hand in this box. And as he puts his hand in the box, she put a pin on his neck and said, if you remove that hand, I'll kill you with this pin. And the box began to create unbelievable pain for the boy. Don't worry, Genesis, what I'm describing is in the trailer, so I'm not spoiling anything. The box began to create unbelievable pain for the boy. And she made a statement. She said, a rat is willing to chew off his own leg. He's willing to chew off with his own leg to get out of a trap. Let me see if you are going to forget all the teachings we've given to you simply because you're in pain. Now, assuming that boy removed his hand before the end of that cycle, they will have killed him because all the knowledge and power they put inside of him, it's better he be dead than be alive and corrupted. Now, God's ways might not be that extreme, but it's very close to that. Very, very close to that, you see? Because to whom much is given, much will always be required. Much will always be required. If God gives you so much, he must test you to make sure that this amount he has given to you, how can you put $1 billion in the hand of a fool, that person will cause $1 billion worth of trouble. Do you know how much trouble $1 billion can buy? <laughs> Do you know how much trouble $1 billion can buy? So fool me that you're saying is harsh. Think about the negative consequence of letting someone like that just go with all that power. is so much worse, you know? So who you are on your worst day, that's the measurement of your goodness, really. Not on your best day. Not when you're happy, everyone is nice to you. Yeah, it's good and everything, but on your worst day, when there's darkness, it's only when there's darkness you can really see the one who is light. So most people, they're only shining because other people are shining around them. So you think they're shining, but actually they're only reflecting the light of others. Off all the light first, you know whether this person is light or not. And God knows how to turn off the light, believe me. He knows how to put off the light <laughs> and he'll put you in darkness. Let's see if there's light in you. <laughs> but that's what we're talking about today, you know. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, in summary, when you begin your work with God, 
no matter how intense your encounter is, God will always connect you to another person who has encountered him and has been developed because you can't break the chain of discipleship. No, no, no. It's never broken. If you look in Israel, they have a document of their entire ancestry all the way to Abraham. They still have it to this day. And the idea of it is primarily about discipleship. Where you came from, you can't break it. So no matter how crazy your encounter with God is, God must plug you into an ancestral line of discipleship. Whatever denomination, he must plug you into it. Because he, there's no other way. How else can you learn except from learning from those who have learned? So that's the way it is. And that's why you, you become a Christian, you become whatever. God said, take Bible. Take it. Because these people, they heard me and they wrote from me. And you can trust the words that are written therein. You know? So yeah. So that's that. Um, before we, we go to the Bukumi, um, Sam, Sam, you said you had some words you wanted to share. Um, it, well, no, it was just on, the, on some of the things you said before, but uh, um, I, I think some of them, a lot of them have already been touched. Um, and I, I always say, I also, uh, okay, so one of them once was in the point of the fact that we see Jesus, you know, um, and uh, the, the eyes, the soul, the heart has got eyes and uh, it can see. And, and and Jesus said when we see him, we would we'll look like him, we we'll, would we'll be like him. And um, um, and in this age, in this world, um, the the best things of life are, are external, but but in the age to come, the the best things are internal. It, which means that we're going to see love for what it is. We're, we're going to see, we're going to see peace. You know, um, the 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 physical the physical realm would, would be would would have dissolved then because the higher reality would have found physicality, and. Um, the, the things that are abstract here will become physical there. And the things that are, are physical now will, will dissolve into the higher reality. Um, and so uh, love will become a tangible thing. You know, in this world, if I want to prove that I have money, that I'm rich, I, I would have a, a, a Lamborghini and a, a nice house. And uh, and we'll be let's say we will be chilling at El Shakar's, um, and then and then uh, uh, and then he's like you know one of my friends he's coming he's got he's got a Lamborghini and everyone is excited and everyone wants to see this new car and in this realm it is external in the age to come it it, it will be internal so in the same way we'll be all at uh, we'll be all at one person's house and then someone will say something like. One of my friends is coming today. He's got love, and it's like someone's gonna say, "So I've got a friend that's coming today. They've got peace," because those things are gonna be tangible. We're gonna see it when a person is coming. They're going to see them. So, in this realm, you know, unknown to our 
to the things our minds can interpret, um, we can actually see more than we can actually interpret. Our souls experience more than we know. And um, indeed, when we see him, we'll be like him because we would have seen him so many times. And and we have seen him so many times. And that just goes, that's why I just didn't want to say anything anymore because um, I think you, you carried on to talk about how and that's why the best way to be revealed is through men, because there we'll be able to see fruits and, and th- those those realities of love. They they are they are parts of him. And um, it's also important that we learn from other people um, that we are brought in by by way of discipleship. Um, um, the Lazarus said to. Uh, the rich man said to Lazarus, you know, just send someone so that they could, they could go and, and see him and uh, tell my brothers about this, this place so that they wouldn't come. And, and, uh, and the, rich man, the rich man did say that uh, even if an angel goes, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make any difference. Um, in the same way, a lot of things we want to see, they wouldn't make any difference yes. if those things are not reverted inside of us. I think you started also by talking about how for you to impart a reality, you must that thing must have crystallized within you. Yes. And I think those are the things we actually do have. And those are the things we actually have seen and therefore can touch. Um, yeah, I think the other things are, are okay. But yeah, um, the other thing I wanted to say, I think it's, there's no need for them, but uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that, Sam. Thank you so much. God bless you. And yeah, absolutely. You know, a time will come where the measurement of, of riches is not about your Lamborghini, but your, your input nature and character, you know. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, Sam. Thank you. So yeah, Bukubi, your hand is raised. All right. Good evening, Sakar. Good evening, Good evening everyone. Um, okay, so... Recently, I've been catching up on the blog. Mm-hmm. I think I've been doing this since July. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've been doing um, a lot of reading. And I think where I, I stopped and I said, okay, I, I said to ask like quite a number of questions was where you talked about um, Satan and hell. Yeah, you know, you <laughs> did like a part one, the part two. And... Um, you know, I kept on reading and reading and reading and it was like all, every single thing I knew about this thing was just so shattered. And, and um, you know, it just really started to open up a lot of things. And the part that I, I just kept asking myself questions and just asking God questions was where you were explaining of, um, I can't remember the exact part right now, but you were just, basically trying to explain that okay I remember you saying that the things that actually born there is um is um the nature that is not of God yeah and definitely anything that has a beginning as an end so once the scene has ended like you, you went on talking about the second death and okay at that part I have oh. to pause and I'm not like okay after that so that means that they are now going to start like it is like they're going to start a new beginning or something. So at that point so like I was just really, really so 
So as from that nature has been burnt out, like every single thing as like the sinful nature in them is gone. Is that the end? Like, is there going to be a beginning? And okay, that's the first part I wanted to understand. The second part, you explained of how that Shatan is actually a principle. Like, you know how we always think that, oh, is the guy who just comes and spoils God's plans and all that, what we all think. But you know how you broke it down just really made me understand that, you know, God is actually the one in charge. He has always been in charge. So it's not as if anyone is coming to actually spoil his plans. So where do we not get the concept of Lucifer in the book of Isaiah, where we all come up with the concept that, oh, is the one who fell and all that. So, like, I just really want to get more clarity on that, on those two aspects. Thank you. Thank you for that, Bokomi. Well, I mean, for the second part about um, Satan, Shatan, um, we have, we, I mean, guys, you remember when we actually talked on the adversary and we really unpacked it for like two weeks? Who remembers? Yep. Hey. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, um, I'll definitely refer you to that recording, um, Bukumi, to listen to the adversary podcast because things like Satan, hell, heaven, all these things, these are what I'll call doctrinal pillars. And I'm very careful in <clears throat> just answering such questions superficially because it will leave, ooh, because if you just say one word, that one word can completely shatter a person's framework of understanding and you can't leave someone um, like that. You know, you can't leave someone like that. So Molade just asked, how do I get the podcast, please? So could someone please post the link to the HTA podcast? And for those who are presently listening, who are presently listening on, on, on the podcast, you know, <laughs> go on Anchor, go on Apple Podcasts, go on Google Podcasts, go on Spotify and search for Heaven's Gate Academy. You're going to find the podcast there. So on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, the FM, um, Google Podcasts, Spotify, you're going to find the podcast there. Wait, actually, if anyone's listening to this on the podcast, then they already have the podcast. Why am I saying that? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so these are the people that are here right now anyway. <laughs> so yeah, it's a three-part teaching podcast. And um, if you go to the link in my bio, you're going to see um, a... a folder or a link to what is called study guides right so for a lot of the sessions we had in the past we actually created like books like mini books like 30 pages 40 pages um, with pictures and writings bringing a lot of scripture explaining a lot of things so every most of the podcasts we have in the past are accompanied by a study guide so just go on my page or on the heaven's gate page click on the link in the bio and click study guides and you find the different study guides that relates to each um, session and whatnot so that you can have um, a, a, a scriptural. So the study guides really took time to unpack things in scripture. The lectures, yeah, they're scriptural, but I spent more time explaining it and getting us to understand the concept. But in the study guides, I started to bring it out in scripture so we can be able to relate it to scripture and whatnot and whatnot. You know? So <clears throat> the subject of hell is something that I do intend to create a session for in the coming days, you know, hell, antichrist, a lot of things. We're going to um, revisit them. Though I would say, hmm, though I would say, 
as something to just um, keep at the back of our minds, right? First of all, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, sorry, I'm, I've been having, I think I have some flu or something, so my breath, I always go out of breath sometimes, and I just start coughing, so in case my voice goes off, that's what's happening to me at the moment. So, um, so in the book of Isaiah, um, chapter 30, chapter 30, verses, um, verses, um, 31 to um, 33. I'm going to bring it out here right now. Honestly, a lot of the questions that are being asked, they actually deserve like your whole session all to themselves because they're very um, broad. They're very broad. So, um, but um, I'm going to bring out um, the scripture of Isaiah. Isaiah verse chapter 30 verse 31 to 33. So it says, it says, and this is something to really pay attention to, you know, because like said, okay, come has already posted it. Thank you. Like said, there's nothing in the New Testament that is, that just appeared all by itself. Every single concept, principle, everything in the New Testament is an evolution of what was written about in the Old Testament. They might have changed the manner in which they communicated. They might have even changed the language. For example, the New Testament was not written in Hebrew. Majorly, it was majorly written in Aramaic and Greek, right? It was mainly written in Aramaic and Greek. And in the Old Testament, when they talk of hell or the pit, it's called Sheol or Gehinom in Hebrew, but in Greek, it was called three things, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. And for those who are familiar with history or mythology, you know that Hades, um, Tartarus, these are not um, places or beings that are quote unquote related with Christianity, true or false, or with the Hebrews, true or false, how many of us know that? True, true, true. Uh So that already opens up us up to the idea that hmm, how come Paul used things from the Greek mythology to talk about God? So that that is a very big question mark because how come he used something from Greek mythology to talk about something that? So that really lets you know that whether you call it uh, hell, whether you call it Sheol, whether you call it uh, Avicii, whether you call it uh, Tartarus. It doesn't matter what religion you belong to or what you believe, there is a dimension that exists where broken and corrupted souls find themselves. And people in all of history have known about it. That should, that, that, that should first of all sink in our minds. That the idea of hell and hell, when if we think that there's only people in Christian religion or the Jewish race that have known about it, well, history and knowledge available will counter you in thousands of places. Even the story of Noah, do you think it's only in Christianity that is recorded? There are over 350 accounts in different cultures and tribes of the great flood, just in case you didn't know, but that's besides the point. I mean, if something is true, then, I mean, many people talk about it, right? You know, so you should be worried if it's only in the Bible that a great flood was spoken about, true or false? I'm asking. True. 
Uh -huh. So you should, you should, it should scare you. True, definitely. <laughs> uh -huh. Because if something is true, you should be able to you should be able to go to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south, and see <coughs> see a connection between them, and so on and so forth. So, like I said, everything in the New Testament has its root in the Old Testament, right? And in order to understand a lot of concepts that were evolved by Paul, because most of the New Testamental teachings, it was Paul and John that evolved it. Now, if you just take the New Testament and you don't go back to understand the roots of a lot of things, there's room for a lot of misconception and misunderstanding. And one of them is hell and lake of fire. Many people think the concept of hell and lake of fire was only spoken about for the first time in the New Testament, but that's not true. Because in the Old Testament, whenever they talk about the pit, the ditch, the hole, Sheol, all these different things are symbols of hell. When Jesus Christ said, if the blind follows the blind, all of them will fall into a pit. That pit they spoke about is not a, a pothole on Lagos Road. That pit talks about the dimension of hell. Now in the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 31 to 33, verse 31 to 33, we see how Isaiah spoke about the nature of what the lake of fire is, right? And if you read it carefully, first of all, it says, that through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as it strikes with the rod. Now, the first thing to note here is that, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Awesome. The first thing to note here is that the rod is being mentioned, right? And for those of us who are familiar with the Bible or history, the rod is a tool that a shepherd uses, right? And in those days, when a shepherd is leading the sheep, he holds in his hand two sticks. One is the rod and the other is the staff, right? The staff is the, is the stick that he uses to point the sheep where they ought to go and put them in a different direction. And the rod is what he uses to discipline them. And if you notice, the, the rods that, that the Hebrew people used back then, he had like a hook at the top, right? He had a hook because sometimes a sheep might be going astray and they would just use that hook to wrap itself around the neck of the sheep to pull it back into place. So that's a symbol of what the rod is. It's a corrective tool used to bring someone back into direction after they've gone astray, exactly to the to some 23 vibes. That's why David said, your rod and staff comfort me. So this is David, because he, he himself had been a shepherd, he understands that if God is a shepherd and he, if he is a sheep, there'll be times when he will go astray, he will miss his way, and God will have to use the rod to pull him back into place. And that's why he said, your rod and staff comfort me. Because the greatest kind of comfort you can have is when God takes away from you the very thing that creates pain and suffering within you. That's really the heart of comfort, you know. And David said, your rod and staff comfort me. So if we look at the Bible and we see that the rod was always a symbol of correction, of goodness, of bringing people back in line, how come Isaiah is now relating hell and the lake of fire 
with the rod. This is something for us to begin to use to question a lot of things. Like I said, this is something that we're going to have a full session on and we'll dive deep into it to see what the Bible actually teaches about this. But I want us to first of all start from here. Isaiah said, for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps. And in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. Now look at the last part. For Topheth was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, or we can say like a lake of brimstone, kindles it. So some very important things are here. First of all, you can see that you can see that um, Isaiah is talking about a lake of brimstone, which we also see where. Where in the Bible do we see about a lake of brimstone and fire? The book of huh? Revelations. Revelation. The book of Revelation. We see about the, the, uh, the lake of fire and brimstone. So from here, we can see that the lake of fire and brimstone wasn't first talk, spoken about in Revelation, we already see it's being spoken about here in Isaiah, right? And some very interesting keynotes. It said that he has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. So here, Isaiah is actually equating the breath of God to the lake of fire. Are you guys following? Yes. Are you following? Now let's actually let's actually revisit. Let's actually revisit the very first verse. And it says, For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down. It was beaten down by what? The voice of the Lord. As he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes. Now, from here, if you read it very carefully, if God's, if the voice of the Lord strikes a person like a rod, what do you think that voice is trying to get the person to do? I'm asking. To correct them? Yes, but what else? If the voice of the Lord is striking you, what, what, why, why did he say the voice of the Lord? Aha, Tureso lovely. Tureso said to listen. Exactly, to listen. Because the people that the Lord was striking were people who obviously weren't listening. Are we following? Huh? Yes. And based on their character, based on the way they handle each other, based on their greed, their selfishness, their violence, you can tell that this was a nation that wasn't listening to God. Because a place where God is listening to, you will definitely see it manifest in the way they handle one another. So when they talk about Assyria being um, struck by the Lord, by the rod, it talks about the people who weren't listening. And for those of us who know about sheep and shepherds, when the shepherd strikes the sheep, it's to get the sheep to listen. When the sheep is going in the wrong path, in the wrong way, it strikes it on the head so that it can 
come back. Because that's always the intention of God to bring his people back unto himself. So if the lake of fire is associated with the rod of the Lord and with his breath and with his correction, that should open our minds up to a whole new perspective on what hell and the lake of fire is. Because up until this point, we've had that idea of God creating a place to suffer people for what they have done and just make them torture them and this and that and that. I want us to really think about that. Now, I'm not of that opinion of people who say, oh, God is so good that, oh, how can a loving God have a place like hell? You know, hell can never exist. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying hell doesn't exist. I'm talking about the purpose of it. Do we understand? Yes. Are we all following? Yes, yes. Um, yes. Because yes, it's one thing. It's one thing to know that a place exists or something exists is another thing entirely to know why it exists. And that's a whole different ballgame, a why. And for the most part, when we study the Bible very well and God's intentions, nature, and character, we'll see that the church has missed on the why. And if you miss out on the why, there's no way, no how, you won't also somehow miss out on the what. So I'm just going to leave it there because, like I said, this is a whole um, this is a whole body of doctrine that has to be addressed properly. We have to take our time and unfold it. But I just want to leave us with this: first, reflect. Why will Isaiah relate the breath of the Lord to the lake of fire? And why will he relate the lake of fire to the rod of God and his staff? That's something for us to think about, you know. So that'll be my response to you, Bokumi. Thank you, Shakar. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Genesis, your hand is raised. Um, so, yeah, my question is, Concerning, um, I don't really know how to ask it. It's like, um, I think anxiety, basically, um, how to deal with that because there are days where um, I know it's because it's not. I know it's not something that has to be a consistent struggle. Um, but I want to know if there are like patterns. I don't know. Or I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask this question, but I'm not sure how to ask it. Like things that help to um, guide my mind, so that the muscle memory is not um, getting anxious when something starts to happen. Um, do you understand my question? I mean, I understand. You know, it's it's a it's a million dollar question that I think <laughs> is asked in all the ages, all the times. How does one handle? anxiety you know i mean i don't think there's anyone here who hasn't felt anxious before you know um i mean is it i mean it's i mean foundationally it's related with our wiring as people you know a lot of us were raised to um 
to be controlled by fear, you know, fear was a very fundamental factor in our lives growing up. You know, oh, if you do that, I'm going to beat you. Oh, if you do that, I'm going to call masquerade. Like me now, I was very afraid of Lagbaja growing up, you know, and whenever they want to get me to do something, they say, oh, I'll call Lagbaja for you. I'll just start to cry. I'll cry, 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 you know, because I was afraid of Lagbaja. <laughs> and um, fear was what they used to keep me in check, you know, fear. And naturally, I grew up as a fearful person, you know, afraid of Lagbaja, afraid of the dog, afraid of, you know, maybe your parents see you playing and, you know, they are afraid of you falling down and injuring yourself. And, you know, the way they panic when they see you about to fall down or something like that, it also injects fear into you, you know, and you who was, you as a child, you know, who, um, could do a backflip, jump from here, all of us, all of a sudden, you're not afraid of a lot of things. So growing up, fear was something that was instilled in every single one of us. Fear of something, just fear in general. And once that disease of fear entered into us, it begins to express itself in different things. You know, fear of someone not liking you, fear of you know getting this job fear of not having money fear of dying fear of this now not saying that one should lose their job or one should die or one should um or one should um you know be careless but the problem is fear because once there's fear there can be some kind of manipulation you know because when you are anxious, when you are, you are worried, is because there's a reality that you can foresee in your mind's eye. And maybe it's a reality that you don't want to happen. You know, it's a reality that you wish wouldn't happen. And you just can't get that image out of your head. Maybe, oh my God, I'm not ready for my exam. And you know, prior to the exam the next day, you are fearful, or you are anxious. Because, because you are afraid that if you don't pass, your parents might do this or that, you know, fear of a lot of things. So when you find yourself anxious about something, the first thing you need to ask is, what am I afraid of? You know, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? And when you are able to identify the very thing that you're afraid of, now you know the enemy that you need to combat. How you combat it, there are many ways. Because like I said, the question you ask is very generic and I can't give a tailored answer to a generic question, so I can't really give a generic answer. You know, When you're able to identify the very thing that you're afraid of, now you know what you have to come against. You know, and maybe for example, you know, you 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 are you are at a job, right? And you know, you've worked for a while. You know, you've really you've really worked. You know, you really worked, and you are at a point where you deserve a raise. You know, and you're very anxious about asking your boss about a raise because you're afraid that if you do so, 
you might look at you like, like you're ungrateful and then fire you along the way. You know, and now you find yourself anxious. Oh my God, how, how am I going to talk to him? Now you have to identify that in that moment, what you're afraid of is losing your job or losing a kind of, you know, you're losing a, maybe there's a way your boss looks at you. You're afraid of losing it. You have to identify that thing that you're afraid of. And you need to now make a plan of action of how you're going to combat it. First of all, as a believer, you know, when you identify that fear, you need to take it to God in prayer. First of all, Father, this is what I am afraid of. I've identified that this is what I'm scared of. I need you to help me in this area. I need you to help me to not be afraid so that I'm not manipulated in this place. Because anything that you're afraid of is something that can manipulate you. And that's why you have people who swear allegiance to God. But the moment they put a knife on their neck, they will abandon everything. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you renouncing Jesus Christ because these are those words at the end of the day, you know. But in basic moments, when you're hungry, right? And on a normal day, you're very nice, you're very patient. Now, on the day you're hungry, if you abandon your godly principles, teachings, morals, because of hunger, that moment is a moment where you are denying God at the face of death. And now that death in that moment that you don't want to face is the death of, I don't know, I guess, fear of hunger, you know? And if you act out of character of God because you're hungry, you have denied God. Because in that moment, you chose this path over this path. Does that make sense to us? Yes, it does. Yeah? So to the rest of us, does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. When you find yourself anxious, the first thing you have to do is identify what am I afraid of? What outcome do I not want to happen at all? You need to first of all identify it because that outcome that you don't want to happen has a great potential of manipulating you. Sometimes you say, ah, I don't want this person to talk to me like this. And part of you is afraid of being disrespected. That fear of disrespect can make you curse someone in the way you shouldn't, can make you fight in the way you shouldn't, can make you act in the way you shouldn't. You need to first of all identify, what am I afraid of? So this is just a generic tool I'm giving, you know. Ask yourself, what am I afraid of? Think about that moment. Meditate on it. You will find one or two things that you're actually scared of. When you identify it, when you're able to put a finger on it, now you know what you ought to take to God in prayer. And as you take it to him in prayer, you know, pray about it. God, help me with this fear. I don't want to be afraid of this. I don't want this thing to have control over me. Trust that some way, somehow, he'll start to put you in a direction of things you have to do, you know. But assuming you give a, a, a definite, um, you know, thing that you're anxious about, maybe I could have given a much more... Um, defined response but in general you know when you have anxiety the first thing you want to do is identify what am i afraid of now you know the problem yeah genesis yes yes um, yeah can I, can I still um give an example of something 
But the other hands, okay. um, that is actually helpful. I'll, I'll start there. Thank you. Okay. To do it, so. Um, good evening, everyone. Hi, I'm So, um, my question is, I think, two-sided in a sense. Um, okay, so what I'm basically trying to ask is, um, how does one approach forgiveness, right? And uh, let me let me give an example. So I feel as though when it comes to recent maybe transgressions against you, right? Maybe it's it's I think I think it's easier to forgive right? It's easier to forgive. Maybe if someone were to offend me in this moment, in this time, it would be easier to forgive them, mostly because I'm probably more aware of myself and I'm aware of, you know, my beliefs in Christ and stuff. So, and, and as well as, you know, understanding them and maybe because we don't have like quite, um, we don't have a relationship going far back. However, um, I think for me, the, the the part that I guess dribbles me is the part where, you know, um, yeah, it's basically forgiveness um, on the part of maybe people who hurt you, but these people were people that, you know, you grew up with, people that you trusted and people who, when they hurt you, you know, it wasn't just one time, but, you know, as you grew, and yeah, like it also comes across as though for them, the things they did were normal. You know, even the things that they still do now are just who they are and like they don't understand because sometimes I think as well, when I try to approach this concept of forgiveness, you know, in that sense, um, I guess a lot of people around me as well try to say, okay, but then look at it from this person's perspective, consider their past and consider how they also grew up, you know. Um, and I think to a degree it helps in a sense of you understand, you know, cause and effect and maybe why the person turned out to be the way they are, you know, because people say hurt people, hurt people. Um, but then now when it's just repeated over and over again, even when you try to understand and that person doesn't really seem to care about you understanding or not, you know, how do you, how do you nurture a forgiving heart in an environment that just makes it difficult, you know, where the offense is, is repeated and they are necessarily like tools to just help with that, you know, and at the same time, it's also just, it, it gets entangled with anxiety in the sense that, yeah, like as you were saying to Genesis, that, you know, sometimes when you're anxious, you need to look at what you're afraid of and, you know, spot it. Yeah, and spot it and then confront it, you know. And at the same time with this issue of forgiveness, it's a matter of like when I, when I, when I guess try to sit down with God and, confront this matter, I find myself giving into distractions, you know, and not being able to sit in the present and really confront it because it also makes me anxious as in, you know, how, how am I even going to confront the situation where, you know, 
most of the things now are feelings rather than memories. So you can't even pinpoint or write down and, you know, and it's just a very vast and unknown area, you know. So I don't know if my question makes sense, but yeah, you can ask for clarity. And I will attempt it, you know. At the end of the day, all I'm doing is just attempting to answer every question, you know, and hoping that somewhere along the line, maybe some help from the Holy Spirit reaches us, you know. But with forgiveness, you know, the first thing, the first thing that I would say is, we only need to forgive people when we criminalize them for being who they are, you know? I say this because if your dog, who is a dog, poops on your carpet, you know, the dog doesn't understand your dimension of life. It doesn't understand the value the carpet has to you. It doesn't understand. It doesn't know where your bed is. It doesn't, it doesn't understand the value of your cables. It doesn't understand any of these things because the dog is a dog and you are a man. Now, if the dog poops on your carpet, there's nothing to forgive because the dog was just what it was. The problem is that we thought the dog was something other than they were. And this is the foundation. And sometimes it's a very painful and rude awakening. Because when we're disappointed by people, disappointment primarily is when there's a contradiction between who we imagine or wish a person to be and who they actually are. And that is what causes disappointment. Because I imagine that you will be like this. I imagine that you will respond like this in this situation. I imagine that you will be more understanding. I imagine that you'll be more patient. I imagined, imagined, imagined. And when we really reflect deep down, now I'm going to start with the hard thing, then I'm going to the easy thing. When we reflect deep down, we see that our heartbreak had more to do with our imaginations of that person as opposed to who they actually were. Because if I know that you are a thief, I know that you have a problem, you know, you're a kleptomaniac. If you see something around you, you just believe it's yours and you want to steal it. If I know that, if I really know that, one, either I won't be surprised when you steal from me, or two, if I don't want to be a victim of your theft, I'll arrange myself in such a way where I will not be a victim of you being who you are. This is very important because the Bible says that Jesus Christ didn't give himself to any man because he knew what was in them. When they came and said, let's put a crown on your head, he took off to the mountains because he knew what was in them. Jesus loved everybody, but he trusted 
nobody until they earned it. You know, because he saw exactly what they were. And sometimes it might take us 10 years, 15 years, 20 years to actually see who a person is. And most of the time, a lot of this great hurt comes from our own family members, you know. Some of us had fathers who were not really fathers, fathers who were like our sons. You know, some of us had mothers who were really like our daughters, you know. And the real pain that we had is that we imagine this person to be a father or a mother, but actually they were not. Not saying, I'm not talking about what is fair or what is not fair. I'm not speaking about the facts of things. Even though you wish that this person could be a father, even though you wish that this person could be a good friend, even though you wish this person could be a great lover, the truth is that they're not. And that's the first thing we need to realize when we're relating with people. Who is this person in front of me? You know, first thing, who is this person? When we have an idea of who they are, some situations are different, you know, different, they're different dynamics. But if it's in our power, when we know who this person is, as much as we would like to love and be there for them and all that, we have to also know how to arrange ourselves in such a way where we are not always casualties of who this person is, you know, and how to make sure that this person's character nature does not also transform me into something that is not pleasant. So with forgiveness, It's not a very easy thing because pain has different degrees, you know, and um, everyone has all kinds of pain and whatnot. And we're all dealing with various kinds of pains, you know. I won't stand here and talk about, tell you that, oh, I've completely forgiven everyone who has hurt me, you know. I won't say that, but I'll say that there are ways that God has helped me, you know. And one of them was asking myself, This person who hurt you, this person who offended you, this person who made you feel this way, what you're turning into, this quote-unquote angry person, this rage-filled person, this ugly person, quote-unquote, is this what you want to be? Is this what you want to look like? Would you like to evolve into that kind of person because that's when the loss will be double. That's when it's a double tragedy. The first tragedy is the things that they've done to you. The, the second tragedy is what those things have made you become. You know, and you have to look at it. It's already bad enough that this person has hurt me, done this, done that. But what is worse than that is if because of that, I lose myself a lot. So aside from that person, you need to actually realize that who you are fighting for is yourself. You're fighting for your own life. You're fighting for your own inward goodness. And forgiveness has less to do with that person and more to do with you. 
Because oftentimes we say forgiveness and we think forgiveness is about a person changing, but most times people don't change. At least not in the way we expect them to or in the time frame that we expect them to, you know. So what then, if they don't change, would we become something unpleasant like they did, whatnot, you know? So first of all, it's a decision we have to make. I mean, it's much deeper than that, you know, one really has to go through a lot of therapeutic, you know, sessions and programs and, you know, a lot of conversation to help you unearth a lot of things and really place your feelings and everything. But the first thing you need to do is to make a decision that no matter what, you are going to be a child of God, no matter what. That's the first decision you have to make. If you don't make that decision in your heart, it's not possible to forgive anybody. You have to first of all make that decision that I want to be a child of God. I want to be a good person. I want to be a godly person. And that decision has to be made in your heart. And the moment that decision is made, you see, once that decision, that foundation is there, you by yourself will begin to look for ways, different ways to bring this thing into manifestation. You know? So first of all, we have to see people for what they are, what they actually are. Don't, like, for example, if you go in the bush and you see a poison ivy, you know, a poison ivy is not a, is not a rosemary leaf or a coriander leaf or a, or a, what other leaves do we use to cook food? It's not uh, parsley. It's poison scent ivy. Leaf. Yeah, it's not scent leaf, you know. <laughs> it's poison ivy, right? You have to know this is poison ivy. Don't think it's any other thing but poison ivy. Because the moment you do so, you take it with a different expectation. And that's when you're shocked because you thought this thing was something other than what it is. So that's the first thing. Doesn't necessarily take away the pain, but it gives, it, it has less impact on the mind when you already know this is what this person is, than when you tell yourself, oh, I wish there would be something else. That's when it's much more painful because now your imagination and the reality of that person is in contradiction, you know? Second of all, we have to make a decision to want to be good people, you know? To want to be good people. You actually, actually, first of all, it begins by you wanting to be healed of pain. Like I said, different situations are different. You know, different situations are different. There are different methods of application to different circumstances. But primarily, everything begins with a decision. Do you want to forgive this person? If you want to, if you want to, that is, if that is your real desire, I want to be able to forgive this person. I want to be able to love this person. Now, loving the person doesn't necessarily mean that you always put yourself in harm's way. Sometimes you meet people who, the truth is, except the, the dynamics are so complicated that you can't get away from them. But there's some people who you have to just keep your space from, you know, because too much proximity, you know that you don't have the capacity to be good if you are that close to them. And you have to be honest with yourself as well. At least at this point in my life, I'm not, I don't have the fortitude to be good in your presence. 
And that's something we also have to be honest about. And in the time that we spend away, we begin to work on ourselves and grow in hopes that maybe one day we'll be strong enough to handle such a person. You know, but first of all, we have to want to be able to forgive someone who has hurt us. When you want something, all the things that need to align themselves will start to align, but it begins with you wanting it. If you don't want it, you'll find every reason in the world to hate them. And that's life. If you want to hate someone, if that's what you really desire, you'll find something wrong. They killed Jesus Christ. The greatest man that ever lived, the most beautiful, they found something to hate about him. If you want to hate someone, you'll find a way to hate them. And if you want to love them, if you want to forgive them, you'll find a way. So it also begins with you wanting to, you know. And thirdly, like I said, you have to realize that forgiveness has more to do with you than with them. Because why will you, it's already bad enough what they've done. It's already bad enough what they've said, how they've treated you, how they've acted. What is worse is if you now lose your beauty. So if anything, you want to fight for that. Yeah, I see what you said. I see how rude you were. And I can see that it wants to make me become a very rude person as well, where I speak in a vile way and I'm cruel. I can see that that's what you want to make me. But that's not who I want to be. And I will never choose that path, you see. I want you to change that perspective. That you're actually fighting for your beauty, your own inner riches, your wealth. What makes you a wealthy person on the inside? When you realize I'm fighting for this, it changes the dynamics, you know. So that's what I'll say to you to do it so. Are you there? Oh, sorry. Um, my computer froze a bit, but yeah. Um, thank you. Um, just to add on that, I think you've already answered it, but um, you mentioned how, you know, as a person, like if you if if someone's a kleptomaniac, right? You need to arrange yourself in a manner where you don't become a victim, right? And like as you explained, I realized that for people there are two ways that that happens, right? Um, maybe as you're unaware and stuff, you arrange yourself in them in that manner, but yeah, you arrange yourself in a way that minimizes, I guess, the impact or doesn't really, but you know the world, like, yeah, I guess maybe, you know, you develop some unhealthy defense mechanisms and stuff, I guess, which do have one lose their beauty, but at the same time, you know, when you do come to awareness of that and you know, realize that that's not necessarily the best arrangement, you know. Um, okay, maybe I think you have answered this question, but let me just carry on. Um, when you realize that's not necessarily the best arrangement, however, um, you know, the when, when now you have to trade in, I guess, those defense mechanisms for, I guess, all that God wants us to be, you know, um, while still in close proximity to, you know, that situation, you know, um, yeah, like how, 
I guess, how do you go about that in, in a more practical sense? Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. Was very, sorry, yeah. You're saying sorry? I was saying that I'm, I'm aware that that question is very like vast. And as you yeah. said, like it, it requires a lot of more than, you know, just one conversation, but it, it would be fine if you carried on still. Um, well, two things. One, we have to realize that loving someone is like picking up a rose, right? A rose is very beautiful to see and it also smells very lovely. But as beautiful as a rose is, it has thorns. And I can tell you, there's no one you can love in this world who wouldn't cause you some kind of pain. And that's something to, that's something that should be remembered fundamentally, that in love, there's always some form of pain, always. Always, you know, always. Because people always do things differently to us. And sometimes they're not even trying to offend us, but just who they are is hurtful. It's just hurtful. Some people are not bad, but they're not emotionally sensitive. So, you know, the things that you wish they care about, you wish they check on you, but they don't and you're hurt. And it's not because they are bad, but that's just what they are. And, you know, remind me of a question again so I can be sure that if you can say a question again to that too. Okay. Um, so I was asking how you begin to trade mm -hmm. in your, yeah, your defense mechanisms for. I guess how God would want you to go about, you know, daily life in a situation that is so quite toxic in a sense. I mean, let me first of all start by saying that defense mechanisms are not entirely a bad thing. You know, it only becomes a bad thing when those defense mechanisms become destructive to you and people around you. But everyone has to have the kind of defense mechanism. Jesus Christ, for example, there are some areas of himself he will never let you touch. Forget it. He will never let you touch that, those areas. He can love you. He can come close. But you see this place? You're not going near. And it's not unhealthy. It's not a detriment to himself. And it's not a detriment to you. It's actually the opposite. It's protecting you. It's also protecting himself. It's, there has to, everyone has to have some degree of boundaries in place. Can I be unhealthy boundaries? Yes, when you begin to throw away the baby with the bad water. So maybe, for example, um, you know, you had a friendship in the past and, you know, your friends lied, you know, they, they, they lied, you know, they disappointed you, they let you down. And because this happened three times, you not tell yourself, I'll never have friends again. I'll never let anyone in. I'll never, I'll never. Well, it, it is possible that those people who hurt you you probably let them into places where you should not have let them into at all. So the problem wasn't those people or those friendships. The problem was that you allowed them to enter a place where you shouldn't have. So you should have had some boundaries, right? 
So if that friendship ends, for example, you have to recognize why did that friendship hurt me so much? Well, I probably expected more than I should. Now the key word is more. The problem is not expectation. The problem is expecting more than what a person is capable of giving. And that's where discernment comes in generally when we make friends. Like me, if I meet you for the first time from one conversation, I've already made an assumption about you. Now it's not always correct, but Based on, you know, meeting different people, different characters and whatnot, I don't, when I meet a person, I have a general idea of who you are. And the more we talk, I have a general idea of the kind of person I perceive you to be and how or what degree of trust I can give to you. Because you cannot meet people and just give them everything. Like I said, you have to have defense, but healthy defense, not a defense where you push everyone out or you bring everyone in all these extremes you know and it's something that one has to you know develop over time and from different experiences you know review this past friendship this person hurt me so much why did it hurt me like that where did i let them into that i shouldn't have you know and what kind of personality or character do they have that i should not allow into a particular space this way you can enjoy people more because you don't, you don't trust them more than you should, you know? But apart from that, in order to love someone, in order to forgive someone, try to see what is good inside of them. Try to see it, you know, try to see it, allow yourself to see it, you know? Allow yourself to see it. Allow yourself to meditate on it. Allow yourself to see it. Allow yourself to see what is worth fighting for. Not seeing it to the point that you're you are ignorant of the things that are not so pretty, but enough to find, because you can't love if you can't see something worth loving. And that's the truth. And that's why God can love us, because no matter how far gone you are, he can still identify something worth loving you no matter how far gone you are everyone has that drop of light that god can see and if he tells you love this person it's because he wants you to see something that you are not seeing that he can see you know and if we can't see it you need to ask god again because we're 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 people of faith and we need to always ask god about things father this person you see this person this person is unlovable (laughs) you know this person is unlovable. But if you love them, then they're not completely unlovable. They are, they, are, they are unlovable to me where I am. I need to be able to love them. Show me how. What am I not seeing? Like I said again, it's something you have to want. You know, something you have to wish for. You have to wish for growth. You have to wish for increase. You have to wish for expansion. You know, but ultimately, in our relationships where love is involved, we have to know that pain will also be involved some way. People will break your heart. That's life. Sometimes they might do it. <coughs> sorry. <coughs> they might do it intentionally. Sometimes they might do it unintentionally. But in love, there's hurt. You know, what degree of hurt are we able to manage and deal with? That's up to us. But we can't. Sorry. Oh, my God. Sorry, guys. We can't um, um, engage love without expecting 
some kind of hurt not to happen along the way. You know, because that's actually what love is about. Love is supposed to be able to offset the shortcomings of others. Because life is like an exchange, you know. And when someone hurts you, it's like a debt they owe you, right? Money they owe you. Love is what is able to, love is what is able to cancel out someone else's debt. So love only has value when there's something that needs to be paid for. And our just Christ said, of what value is it to love people who love you? He said, there's nothing, you know, it's, it doesn't bring any profit. But loving someone who um, hates you, quote unquote, now that's when your, your love, your currency has application. You know, so I'll say, it's not just about taking away one's defense mechanisms. It's not, it's not just about um, not having any walls or let me not use the word walls, not having any defense. It's about knowing where defense applies, you know, and where to open up and where to close because you can't be open to everyone. And you also can't be close to everyone because there are times where you really need to open up. And who knows if this person in front of you, they can, if you speak to them, open up to them, they have things that will help you in this time of your life. You know, but that comes with a lot of, I guess, discernment, intentionality, you know, weighing people. But we always, always have to assess all our friendships, especially the ones that go sour. We need to sit down and meditate on them. Why did it go this way? Oh my God, what she did hurt me so much. Why did it hurt me? What happened? What was I expecting from her that she didn't give to me, you know? And in doing so, you can probably see areas where you can actually talk to them because it's not only just about you, you know, you can find ways to talk to them, to communicate with them. Like I said, it's, it's, so, it's, it's really broad. It's so hard to, you know, really um, tailor it. But I'll give you a little example, you know, my younger sister, I think she's here, but she, she's, she's not here. She, she started school and she called me, how she was crying. She was sad that, you know, her classmates didn't like her, you know, and they were rude to her and everything. I said, why? He said, I don't know. You know, but I came to school, you know, I was always answering the teacher's questions and, you know, so she now said there's a time when she tried to help one of them with their, with their assignments. And the person said, are you the teacher? Why are you trying to help me? Oh, when she said that, I got it. I said, oh, okay, the issue here is they feel stupid around you. They feel like they don't know anything when you're present. And that doesn't make them feel good. And as much as it's not fair, you also have to be compassionate enough to look at people's experiences and try to help them. You know, so I told her, I said, instead of always telling them, let me help you, find ways to take help from them and make them feel valuable around you. And let me see if you do change. So I said, sometimes maybe just ask them, oh, where's the cafeteria? You know it, but you're just asking them so that they can feel like they're helping you. Ask them, oh, what's the answer for this? And lo and behold, two weeks later, she comes and say, wow, I did it. And oh my God, now, you know, we're friends now. They love me. In fact, we've been watching anime together, you know. And that's how her relationship, they changed, you know. Something that was causing her pain, stress and everything, it changed because, you know, we were able to assess the environment and see things that could be done differently, you know. So we also have to assess our friendships, you know. Why does this thing keep happening? What can I do differently? You know, of course, she didn't have to, you know, bring herself to that point where she starts to make them feel valuable. But love, compassion, wisdom does that when needed, you know. Like I said, it's a very generic question, so I can only give, like, generic responses. But this is an example, you know. 
So we assess the friendship, we assess it, and we saw, okay, these people, whenever you're around, they don't feel valuable. And no one likes to feel that way. So you can be intentional about helping them, making, helping them to feel valuable, you know, around you and around themselves. And she did that, and now they liked her, you know. So we need to also assess our friendships, assess relationships. Is there anything I can do to change it? Is there a conversation I can have? What can be done? So it's very broad, you know. But in general, when there's love, and especially, you know, when, when, um, when there's love, there's always going to be some form of pain or hurt, you know. But one thing is important. God builds us into people that become greater than those things. And you'll find that as a believer, as you start to grow, a lot of things that used to disturb you, you know, you see, doesn't worry you anymore. That is if you if you really desire to grow. You know, like me now, there's some things that someone can say. <sighs> like I say, there are only two people in this world who can actually really make me upset. Like people who can make me legitimately upset. Only two people: my mother <laughs> and my sweet Esther. <laughs> it's very hard. It's very hard for anyone else to really make me upset it's, it's 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 genuinely hard like they really have to make extra effort truth be told you know because there are just some things gotta just help me come over like genuinely it's 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 hard you know and that's what god does you know he expands our capacity and something that was once upon a time an impossible situation he knows how to arrange it in a way or arrange us in a way where we are not able to walk over it you know, and he uses relationships to do that. I once watched a video, a priest was talking about, he asked God um, for a heart of love and God provided him with an unlovable person or unlovable people, you know, he said how to forgive. He provided him with situations where he had to forgive. He said, ask God for patience. He provided him with situations where patience had to come out of him. And that's usually how the journey is, you know. But at the end of the day, every situation is peculiar and who knows what's particular situation that you're in. So everything I'm just saying is still generic, you know, so, um, but I hope in all that's been said, um, you're able to find something of help to do it, so. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so, so much. That was you're quite welcome. helpful. God bless you, you're welcome. Yes, Namavuyo, you missed your turn. I was calling you earlier. So we're, um, we're going to have um, Nomvuyo, Confidence, and Fumi. And so those are the, going to be the last questions we're going to have for today before we come to a close. Um, so yeah, Nomvuyo. Good evening. Sorry, Good evening. everyone. I've had a very long day, so I was drifting off. <laughs> but no um, I guess I've had this question since the first session that I attended. Um. You touched on a lot of things that I wanted to ask, but I think specifically the part of having a pure heart. Um, I think I found myself to be in a place where, uh, you, you know, when you, you find yourself in the dark and you realize you fail at being, um, choosing the light and you choose the chaos, you choose what you know. Um, and so I think my question is, how does one go after maybe strive, maybe striving to do the right thing? How does one go from um, after finding themselves, you know, in the darkness to actually 
moving from religious deeds to a pure heart, you know, because um, it, it still doesn't, maybe it's not supposed to make sense, but uh, you did mention the last session that whatever it is that's from God is supposed to point to the cross. What if you find yourself always pointing back to yourself and how you can do this? And, you know, how can I change this? How can, blah, 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 but it never points back to Christ. How do you move from that point of empty works to um, spirit-filled works uh, when you find it quite difficult to do good, if that makes sense? So are you saying that most of the time you rely on your strength and you believe it's mostly your strength and not God? Yes, yes. I, I, if, if I'm being honest, I find myself um, just not uh, meeting the pureness of heart <laughs> measure and um, constantly turning towards the wrong thing and the wrong thing might also look good in the situ in the moment, you know. It might be a good religious deed, but you know the heart is not pure. But you can't find a way to purify your motives, if that makes sense. How does God then translate one into the pure way? So I think, first of all, you know, it, it takes a lot of introspection and um, self-honesty. You know, you have to um, observe yourself, you know, and before you say you want to change anything, you have to, first of all, know what needs to be changed. You know, you, you first of all have to know what needs to be changed. What is, what is not right? What is not holy? What is not complete? You have to, first of all, identify that, you know. And that happens in the place of a lot of self-observation. And just looking at yourself, you know, you, you are doing this right now. You're saying this right now. And in that moment, you're doing this, you're saying this. You're actually watching your own self, you know, almost like scrutinizing your own self. When you begin to identify things that are untrue, if you're able to write it down on a piece of paper, do it. If, you, if that's difficult and you want to take a mental note, that's also fine. But begin to take down the things that you know are untruthful. You know, you know that are untruthful. This is not true. I said I was nice. I, I tried to be nice to this person, but in truth, I wasn't really nice. I just knew that if I'm nice to her, she's going to recommend me for a promotion or she's going to speak well about me and I want her to speak well about me. You know, you need to be honest, you know. You need to be honest about all those things. And you need to identify with what is not right about it. Hi, people. So it was at this point that we suffered a technical malfunction that caused the meeting to come to an abrupt end. But to just conclude on what was being said regarding the girl's question, you know, moving away from religious deeds and moving into deeds of truth, deeds of the spirit, you know, the first thing we can do is just, like we said, identify that. Actually, the only reason I'm doing this is because I was told that if I do this, I'll make God happy. Or I was told this is what it means to be a good Christian. And just being honest with yourself and with God that that is exactly where you are. And there's no shame in that whatsoever, you know. Honesty is always the first step to actually becoming that image of God that we also want to be.
I'm telling your father. Yeah, you told me to be nice to this person. You told me to forgive this person, but I actually don't see why that makes sense. As far as I'm concerned, this doesn't make sense. Everything my mind is telling me is that I need to hold this grudge as, as long as I want to. Everything my mind is telling me is, why should I give to this person? Why should I be kind to this person? And we need to be honest with God regarding that, without shame, without fear, because God is always interested in meeting us exactly where we are. So the first step is always honesty, approaching God with the reality of our present state, saying, God, this is where I am. And in truth, I actually want to obey you from a place of understanding. But right now, I really do not understand. So I actually need you to help me. And you see, if you pray that prayer very diligently, very fervently, in just a little bit of time, God will start to open your eyes. It might open your eyes from words He might speak in your heart. You might find yourself watching a movie that will just communicate something very profound to you. You might stumble upon a sermon on YouTube, or you might just be walking on the street and you just see something and a grand realization will just happen and you'll get the point. And that thing you're once upon a time doing as a religious deed, as a religious act, you start to see the truth behind it and you find yourself able to function from that place of truth. And that is exactly how we begin to grow. So that's always the first step of action, you know, identification of what is untrue in our deeds and being honest with it, first of all with ourselves and then with God and trust Him to help us from there. All right, people, until next time. <laughs> Take care now. Bye.